Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste explode. There they go. My name is William DeBiani. I am a critic for The Rap and other places as well. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I write for Slash Film. Uh, I, I'm also a film critic. I, I love that our, our slogan is getting like just increasingly nonsensical the longer this show goes on. We, we used to have a format, and now we mostly just have a sound effect that occasionally changes all willy-nilly. Like, like the, the sound effect was... It's is sort of like the, the fulcrum. Yeah. We're, we're always going to pivot around that sound effect, and no matter what nonsense the, the catchphrase evolves into. Uh, last time on the Critically Acclaimed podcast, this particular show on the Critically Acclaimed network, uh, I was unavailable because I had lost my voice. Like, you had, just you lost had it. Proper laryngitis. Yeah, really sucked. Um, so uh, we had a fill-in guest. It was Lon Harris. He did a wonderful job. I want to thank him once yeah, again. Lon, Lon Harris, uh, total professional. Uh, I, I didn't get to say this to his face, but he gives great Twitter. Uh, yes, he I mean, does. T- Twitter's collapsing. Lon, t- mm-hmm. Lon Harris uses Twitter maybe the best of any of them. He's a really, really great follow mm-hmm. on Twitter. He's also a really smart guy. We used to yeah. work together at a DVD store here in Los Angeles. We were the video store guys. <laughs> uh, so it was really, really cool to have him on the show. I want to thank him once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were both really, really wonderful. Uh, you only digressed for like five minutes into an old man rant about how movies are too long these days. <laughs> Which, to be fair, if I was here, would have been ten minutes. So I'm not, I can't judge. Well, and and I, I've said this before, you know, there's there's sort of like a, a, a sliding scale uh-huh. of film lengths. If a film is uh, like, under, like 89 minutes or less, that's great. Mm-hmm. If it's 90 to 120 minutes, that's okay. Uh-huh. If it's 121 to like 146 minutes, uh-huh. that's death. You, you realize Once, that uh, like y- y- you mm. co-host a podcast network where most episodes run that long. Yeah, that's fine. That's a podcast. Oh, okay. It's totally I'm different. talking about I movies. Ah. Different format, different medium. Ah, okay. So it's uh, fine when we do it. Yeah, Got absolutely. It. Okay, good to hear. When, when you start getting over, like, around three hours, it's like, okay, you're getting me back again. Once it's over five hours... It's great again. Ah, so, yeah, there's, it's like there's the like, chicken fights and Family Guy. Yeah, so, so the, yeah. really, really short and really, really long are the ideal. And then yeah. once you get Anything sort of like in the middle length, sucks. Yeah, got it. Anyway, what are, what are we reviewing this week? Will we are we are back. We're reviewing movies, and we got some catching up to do because we didn't have an episode last week. We decided to do our monthly episode of the Iron List. We talked about our favorite time travel movies. It's a big, long, epic episode there. So we got some catching up to do. We're reviewing it this week on the show. A lot of movies. So stick with me here. Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Uh, Ryan Coogler's Wakanda Forever. Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Ah, that's right. Black Panther. I always want to just call it Wakanda Forever. Uh, Let's see. We've got the uh, horror comedy The Menu. We've got uh, the ripped from the headlines drama She Said. 
we've got the animated Netflix film My Father's Dragon. We've got the new, uh, is it the Marine Corps drama, The Inspection? Yes, the Marine Corps, yeah. Uh, we've got Luca Guadagnino's new film Bones and All. Uh, we've got the latest adaptation of Little Nemo's Adventures in Slumberland called Slumberland. We've got the sequel to Enchanted called Disenchanted. Which Enchanted? Disenchanted. Not to be confused with Disenchantment, mm. which is Matt Groening's new series. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Mm. And uh, and finally, Lindsay Lohan is back in a Christmas mm. rom-com from Netflix called Falling for Christmas. <laughs> uh, it's a lot of films. Unfortunately, Whitney saw way more movies than I did. Uh, but I want to talk about the biggest film that he and I saw together. This is a new film from Mr. Steven Spielberg. And... Steven Spielberg, like many uh, filmmakers, tends to inject parts of himself into his narratives. You'll see mm. recurring themes throughout a lot of Spielberg's work, often themes of fatherhood or absentee parents. Uh, and uh, here, he's doing the thinly veiled autobiography of me yeah. kind of thing. It's the, I changed the name. It's not the, it's not the Spielbergs. It's the Fablemans. But we all know what we're talking about. This mm. is eight and a half... This is, um, well, who are the other filmmakers who've done this? Well, just recently, like within the last yeah. three or four years, we've had a huge spate of these things. Because uh, Licorice Pizza oh, is yeah. definitely yeah. Uh, the, the P.T. Anderson movie. Basically, um, yes. One could say that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like uh, that film, that filmmaker's young childhood. I would argue I that think Quentin Tarantino is more doing like self-insert historical fiction than anything uh, else. Kind like of, he's yeah, kind of, but, so. but yeah, kind of. It's definitely a... Uh, mm. I hesitate to call them vanity projects, but they're like... Well, they're nostalgia projects. They're nostalgia projects, but there's also a sense of reverence, not just for the period, but also for their experiences within it, Hmm. which, unfortunately, even at their best, make a lot of these films feel pretty self-serving. Well, uh, some of them are quite good. I'm I'm fond of Roma, which is definitely a nostalgia piece, and Mm -hmm. it's such a nostalgia piece, uh, Inuritu tracked down the furniture from his childhood home. Oh, yeah. Like, like it was sold out and they, they found who that, they yeah. sold it to and he bought it back and put like old chairs that yeah. he sat in as a child back in mm. the set. So that was very much, and you're recreating streets you walked down as a child. Mm. Uh, and I think the most effective of the, this recent wave was Richard Linklater's Apollo 10 and a half. Oh yeah, which, that was a good um, one, yeah. Which, you know, it's very nostalgic. He talks a lot about, like, the food he ate and the records he listened to. Honestly, it's mostly plotless. It's just a series of very specific memories he uh, has about being however old he was, 10 or 11 or whatever. But there's a conceit in Apollo 10 and a half, and I don't want to say exactly what it is, because I think it's sort of like... Well, it's in the the, trailer. It's the button of the movie. Well, the the conceit... Oh, you mean the ending? The ending. Oh, okay, never mind. Don't tell the ending. I I think, yeah, and uh, there's there's this uh, hook in the movie where... he grew up near NASA. Yeah, in like the 60s. And it's, yeah. and so it's like an industry town, but they're all NASA workers. And uh, the joke of the movie is these two NASA guys come to the main characters, like 10. Yeah. And says, uh, look, we're NASA, and I know we get it, you know, we're going to space, but we built the space pod a tiny bit too small, so only a kid can fit inside. So we're going to need to send you to the moon first before we send up. The, yeah. fir- the the first moon mission. So yeah, so all of these so, like yeah. actual real memories, very specific hyper detailed mm-hmm. memories of growing in the sixties, are interspersed with this kid being trained to go to the moon. Uh, um, God, what a fun idea! Yeah, and uh, and 
and I think that there's uh, something about that movie that is actually addressing the very nature of memory. Yeah. Uh, which I think is something that puts it a little bit above most of these other movies, which are not just sort of reveling in their own nostalgia. Mm-hmm. It's saying sort of the function of that nostalgia. There, there's, there's a certain... The trustworthiness of it. When you're looking back at your own life or at your own history or things that you remember very distinctly, mm-hmm. um, you, you kind of have two options. You either admit you're being highly subjective and just go for it. Mm. Uh, or you try to achieve some sort of wisdom about it and have something to say yeah. about yeah. that from the perspective of an older person. And oh, uh, Belfast. That was the one I couldn't remember. Oh, yeah, Belfast. Yeah. Belfast. Sorry, I about Belfast, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of these. Um, and I think I personally more often than not prefer the second approach mm. uh, because I think then the movie can become a bit more of a conversation between someone and themselves. Mm. And uh, who they've become is, no, is not like pushed aside yeah. to focus on who they were as a child. And I think, I think Paul Tennant Taft does that really, really well. And I think there's a few elements of the Fablemans that do, that do that pretty well, but mostly we're in nostalgia territory here. Yeah, this uh, this is uh, Steven Spielberg. You can tell how much he's fetishizing the film equipment oh God. in this. And you know, if... <clears throat> As somebody who's worked in, like, projection booths, uh-huh. like, whenever he's, like, handling 16-millimeter film, oh, yeah. it's like, okay, this is really kind of cool and tactile <laughs> in a way. A, there's a great bit, because uh, he's he's growing up in the in the 60s, yeah. and the, well, 50s and 60s. What's his name? Sam... Sam Fableman. Sam Fableman. Yeah, and that's, that's the Spielberg insert character. Yeah, and, uh, and he... At the beginning of the movie, he sees his first movie in a theater. Mm. And it's a cute scene. It's very sweet. They, all the movies, he goes to see the greatest show on Earth. Which is, generally speaking, not considered one of Cecil B. DeMille's <laughs> best films. But I think that might have been what Spielberg actually first saw in a theater. I could be wrong about that. I might have heard that once. Uh, there's some actual anecdotes that yes. he's from his real life that he stages. I definitely movie. recall some of the anecdotes in this movie being told in various interviews and things. I don't specifically remember Greatest mm-hmm. Show on Earth. Might have been. In any case, he goes to see The Greatest Show on Earth. And there's a sequence in that movie where there's a big train crash. And the, the very first sequence in the movie is him asking for a model train for Hanukkah. And then he wants to use, and then he wants to crash it again. He wants yeah. to relive that thrill in the movie. And his dad is upset and says, these trains are expensive. I, I got you like the nice electric train. And if you crash it, it'll break. And I'm not going to let you do that. And his mom, played by Michelle Williams. Mm. His dad's played by Paul Dano. Yeah, very good performances from everyone in this mm. movie. Um, she gets it. She realizes he's trying to relive the train thing. Mm. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the home video camera, which you know back then was shot in actual, probably 8mm film, mm. uh, and I'm going to let you film it once. Yeah. And then you can just relive that over and over again, and hopefully it won't break too much. You can also keep the toy. Uh, and that sets him on a path to make more and more movies. And as he gets older, he gets better equipment as better equipment is made available on the home market there's a sequence where he finally gets and i got to use one of these or at least i got to play with it in a film class once uh a bolex camera (laughs) from like the 60s those were very pretty machines (laughs) they were black and they had this wonderful like sort of they they weighed well like like when you pick it up you can like feel it in your hand balanced lovely like it's it's this jet black but it's not like smooth it's got like a pebbled Mm. kind of surface to it it just feels very mature it's got bright (laughs) shiny silver bits on it um and there's like a bit where he's just like holding he's like holding a camera up to his head to like hear the sound and be like feel soothed and i am not above 
saying that in that sequence I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 kind of what it's like. The, mm. the when you use these kinds of cameras, especially like the good old fashioned physical kind, mm. there's a definite nostalgia you have for just the physical feel and presence and sound yeah. of these things. And at those moments, Fablemans is actually very potent. I think. Well, I think it it when uh, Spielberg is losing himself in the details, yeah, where he's clearly tracking down like vintage pieces of equipment that he mm-hmm. used at himself as a child. Yeah. He's putting the hands of his actors and trying to restage the experience he had and getting those little tactile details yeah. are, are very rich and, you know, they're intriguing to watch, but those are small moments yeah. in a larger film that is actually incredibly flaccid dramatically. Yeah. The story of this movie is essentially, uh, his relationship with his parents. Mostly, yeah. That, uh, that's where most of the real drama comes yeah. in. And uh, his dad is, is an engineer. He's a computer engineer. And uh, on the cutting edge of computers, he's working for like IBM, but yeah. like back in the 70s, back before they were a thing. Yeah. So they're making some pretty good money. He's got some sisters. The sisters are barely have scenes. Like one yeah. of them has like a moment here or there. Well, one but, has uh, a good moment when like the parents' marriage starts falling apart and she has like a really good scene with young yeah. Sammy Fableman. Uh, but yeah, mostly they're, they're mostly there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and his dad is very practical. He's an engineer. He wants his son to be uh, like, get a good education. Yeah. And so maybe even be an engineer like him, but he's not pushing him toward engineering. He is he pushing just, him away from film though. But he's, yeah, he's pushing him away from the arts and his mother is, uh, I think she was a dancer. Uh, no, she's she was a, a pianist. pianist. Yeah. She's gonna. She plays piano on uh, on television at one point. And uh, her big drama is she's living with her husband, but also her husband's best friend, mm-hmm. played by uh, Seth. Played Rogen. by Seth Rogen. And, and they uh, are much closer than she is to her yeah. husband. And there's uh, yeah. a, a pretty a pretty interesting sequence in the middle where uh, the whole family goes on a camping trip. Yeah. Sammy brings his camera. Of course, he's filming everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's some awkward moments and there's some warm moments and they're just sort of having a, a pretty average camping trip. And uh, when they get back, uh, grandma dies. Yeah. And for some reason, Sammy has nothing to say about this, but it affects mom very heavily. Well, it's her mom. So yeah. what? Yeah. So she's mourning very, very, yeah. very uh, So um, Paul Dano, dad, asks him, uh, young Sammy, to edit together a movie of the camping trip because it's something... He knows that mom will. I don't understand this filmmaking thing, but mom will like it if you do that. Yeah. And in so doing, she finds evidence that... Well, he does. Or, pardon? You said she finds. He finds Oh, it. he finds... The son, uh, the Sammy son, finds... Sam, yeah. Sammy starts to look at sort of all of this footage of the camping trip and starts to see evidence that uh, mom and Benny are a lot closer and a lot more intimate and definitely in love even, Wait, if they, even if they don't know it yet, they're yeah. definitely something so, yeah, going there's, there's on like, there. Yeah. Hold, like holding hands and yeah. sitting close and they're always off on the corner together. So yeah. uh, that's a moment where he starts to sort of sour on the whole family dynamic. Yeah. But that sort of pushes him into his mom's corner a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, then they move again and there's all these stuff at here's, school. Here's and it just starts down. to, like, that part of the movie is just an episode and it starts to like dissipate and it becomes more about his filmmaking obsessions and it starts to become really self-aggrandizing after oh, a while. Oh, I, I want to talk about that bit, but I want to focus real fast because I think there's two there's two basic elements of this film. There's okay. Spielberg's parents uh-huh. and Spielberg's coming of age story. Yeah. I want, let's, let's, we started with the Spielberg's parents. Let's go to the logical conclusion of that. Um, 
beautifully acted, I think, by Michelle Williams. And honestly, especially Paul Dano. I think he really Hmm. understands the humanity of his character while also understanding that he is absolutely an obstacle in his son's way. Yeah. And I think he's playing that. It's a difficult role to play without coming across like a giant asshole or like a total, or like a totally misunderstood victim. He really understands like how to like thread that needle. Hmm. And I think he's doing a great job. The problem is that the, the relationship woes of the Fableman parents, they're, they're not that interesting. (laughs) I'm sure it's a big deal to the family Of course it is But like They actually do a rather poor job Of making it Incredibly compelling To the audience Forgive the the buzzword Uh, Because it's just Kind of not that interesting a relationship They're not that, That doesn't And that doesn't mean It needs to be volatile That just means that It doesn't feel Terribly significant Yeah It feels a little significant To Sammy But he's torn in both directions and it doesn't feel like oh and this was the key to unlocking him as an artist it's not really even though it has been argued that it is and indeed many uh, especially early spielberg films a lot of people have argued that spielberg's personal history of his uh you know family strife has greatly influenced for example the very sour portrayal of marriage in the close encounters of the third kind for example which is one of the few Spielberg films that was actually written by Spielberg. So all of their stuff just feels really insubstantial and not in a like, oh, well, it's just a, you know, a, a slice of life thing. It's not supposed to feel substantial. Hmm. No, it, it's played up really big. Yeah. It's, it's just nothing. It just doesn't support that. And it feels it, too light for its own good. It's it Spielberg doing yeah. like his usual large melodrama for mm. something that is really not all that interesting. And, and he's not looking at it in the greater context. Like this is what life was like in the sixties. It's like, mm. no, it's hyper specific. This is not it's, an allegory for anything. This is not a, rep- a stand-in for anything. This is not representative of anything larger than just his life. It, it's hyper-specific in a really frustrating kind of a way. Yeah. Because it's from Spielberg's perspective, which means it's from Sammy's perspective, which means shouldn't we be getting a little bit more of Sammy's feelings about all of this? Yeah, shouldn't this be kid. seen from Sammy's perspective? Yeah, he's a teenager, the camera, but he's still a kid. The camera's next to the parents. It's not from his point of view. Mm-hmm. It's He's like a Dickens character where everything is like dictated to him. That's a really And things happen out, to him rather than him yeah. instigating or interacting with any of the drama around The him. problem is that in Dickens, mm-hmm. uh, all the supporting characters are fucking amazing. Yeah, they're all really colorful. Yeah. And so, you know, it doesn't like matter that... Like, a few are here, but mostly not. It doesn't matter that David Copperfield is a bit of a wet blanket because everybody around him is so yeah, interesting. Yeah, answer yeah. off, like attacking goats was it goats that they hated <laughs> remember when he goes off to live with his i think his aunt and she's like mad because there's like a bunch of animals like outside oh, and she like hates some, the yeah, goats yeah, something like that but um, like they're all very very colorful characters and so it's okay if but, uh, it's mostly okay that the heroes are a little passive because they're in a grander world that we just want to explore which is a really strange if uh you know spielberg is trying to get us to relive his childhood yeah if we're trying to relive his childhood. Why is he such a passive character? Yeah. And then when we get to high school, yeah, they move again. The parents split up. Yeah. You would think that would be sort of like the climax of the movie or Mm -hmm. like a big turning point in the drama. I guess it is uh, finally an excuse for the film to shift focus to Sammy. Yeah. There, uh, he goes to a new school. Uh, he, he hates it. And there's bullies there and there's anti-Semites there. And Which they he's say, never really had to deal yeah, with they, before, according anti, to the film. Anti-Semitic things right to his face. And yeah. the, there's a, a real, rather harrowing scene where he has to face off against some bullies. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, 
he is depicted as being peerlessly upright. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to make any mistakes. Uh, his religion is fetishized by a local girl. Mm-hmm. Like he gets a girlfriend just, girl, just out of being Jewish. He's, he's Jewish and a girl wants to date him merely because he's Jewish. And yeah. there's a line later in the movie where she talks about what a good kisser he is. I'm like, okay. Uh-huh. So Spielberg, Here let me get this straight. Are. Let me All get right. this straight. You, uh, you had some difficulties, but you were an extremely good kisser, very popular with the ladies. Mm. And I want to make just abundantly clear here. You're also saying that not only were you interested in movies and movie making from a very early age, but you were preternaturally a genius at it from an incredibly early age. Mm. You were making movies that touched your mother's soul in a deep and powerful way, which again, I'm not even saying that's not true, but when you present it like this movie presents it, it's not dramatic. There aren't the, the obstacles in his way are just basically, Oh, can I get this editing machine? Mm. Like he has no, he, he's just a genius. He's pretty, pretty well off. He's, yeah. he's pretty well off. He's an absolute genius at every single thing he does. He's inventing techniques that blow people's minds. And again, I'm not even saying that that's not what mm. happened. All, by all accounts, if you've ever seen some of the footage that they've used in various documentaries of Spielberg's early home movies, he was preternaturally talented. He knew what yeah, to do with the camera. But at the same time, when you're telling your own story, and the story is, I was incredibly awesome from start to finish. I was a genius at every single thing I put my mind to, except math, but who cares? And uh, which is just a recurring, kind of, it's a joke a couple of times. And they, but play, like, that's and they it. play it down. Like yeah. It's never something that gets in his way of his it's life. It's never going to be like, oh, I can't do this thing Unless because I, I got an F in math. math. Test, yeah, yeah, it's never an obstacle. Uh, and even the obstacles that were in my path, uh, without giving anything specifically away, let's just say that the power of cinema, and specifically the way Spielberg wields it, has the power mm-hmm. to change the universe, even in school. Yeah, he uh, the he, the people he there's a, a climactic scene right at the end, and I'm not going to yeah. give everything away. No, we're not. Away, no, 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 don't give it. Yeah. Just uh, a, a lot it's, of it's a matter of public another, record. We know Spielberg's yeah. parents divorced. That's very well common yeah. knowledge. Uh, yeah. But uh, a scene at the end in the school where he, he sort of like he's such a good filmmaker that something dramatically positive happens for him. It's like just because his movie is just, so his good. movie is so good that like yeah. his life turns around. And I'm not. And it's actually kind of an interestingly written and performed scene. I the, think the yeah, actors the, make it work better than it should. Like the beats are all over the place. It's in that scene. How do you direct bit. that scene? It's I don't like know. So it's strange. super weird. I, but it's no. It's it, it's distinct. It's certainly distinct. It but I'm not sure out. like what the thrust of that scene was I, supposed to be. It's very very strange. And it just boils down to Spielberg is deeply convinced of his own greatness. Yeah, and, and, and it's a little frustrating because yeah. he's watching movies like The Greatest Show on Earth and Stagecoach, these adventure mm-hmm. films, and Spielberg would become you mm-hmm. know the master of the blockbuster. He'd do stuff yeah. like Jaws. And, and we Raiders see him at an early Arc age and, trying to make like cowboy pictures and mm-hmm. war movies with his friends in the desert. Yeah, and I, yeah. I I would think that Spielberg of today Mm. who has kind of lost his taste for those adventure movies, at least making those kinds of adventure movies. Yeah. Uh, you, you can tell his heart is in something like Lincoln mm-hmm. more than it is in something like Tintin. Tintin is him just sort of mucking around with technology. I don't think he was really interested in storytelling. Yeah. He was interested in sort of moving the camera in new ways because it's an animated film. Uh, there's no camera. He can you know, yeah, show no, whatever images he wants. Um uh, or or something like Ready Player One, which is not just his worst movie, it's one of the worst movies. It's so bad. Uh, <laughs> his heart isn't in a movie like that. No. He's more interested in stuff like The Post and Bridge of Spies, yeah. these sort of more uh, downbeat adult dramas. Although he did announce that his next movie is Bullet. 
That's a little strange. Where, Look, okay. I, I, I was skeptical when he said he was going to do uh, a remake of West Side Story, mm. and he knocked that one out of the park. So, To uh, be fair. To be fair. Uh, so, Bullet. Okay, he's going to do yeah. a Bullet movie. Fine. Listen, I'm not a huge uh, fan of Fablemans, and I'm not a huge fan of everything Spielberg's done. I agree mm. with you. I think Ready Player One is one of the worst things he's ever done, but... Due to his talent, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. He, he I am interested of, yeah. when he makes it in a movie. He yeah, usually it, makes it good. He has a little. T- he has a lot of talent, but he's so blinded by his own nostalgia in this case. Oh, yeah. that he's not bothering to find the interesting drama in yeah. essentially his own life. Yeah, which and is, that's really frustrating. It's really here's the, here's the thing about Spielberg, and I and I and I love so many Spielberg movies. Oh gosh, yeah, I really do. There's so many Spielberg movies that like touch has, me on a personal re- level or change really my life. Really few does, you know. Like like, but like his hits, the big ones, whether or not they're the ones everyone likes. There's a there's a few. I'm sure most people listening, even if you don't like every single thing Spielberg's done, probably at least some of the big ones. Had an impact on you, whether it was Schindler's List or mm. Jurassic Park or Close Encounters of Their Kind or Jaws or Raiders or E.T. or whatever. I really love Minority Report. I love Minority like Report, too. I, I love some of the smaller movies. I think The Post is great. Mm. I think The Terminal is great. The Terminal is really good. I didn't see The Terminal <laughs> re- until, like, last... that recently, and it's really, really good. I had never seen it until last year, and everyone always told me, like, it's not very good. I'm like, that movie's wonderful. Like, it's really <laughs> an excellent film. Mm-hmm. So I'll never write him off here, but like it's he's not typically the most insightful or like um, intricate mm-hmm. filmmaker when it comes to dissecting theme. Yeah. He tends to work in very, very broad strokes. And like usually terms, yeah. especially in visual terms. And and usually that works fine. Sometimes he's got a screenplay that's so good mm. that it comes that he can do that and just let the actors do the thing. Lincoln is a good example of this. Mm. Lincoln is a fantastic screenplay, um, and it's very detailed and it's very uh, uh, full of rich texture and it's it's themes and it's dialogue and it's plot. Um, but not all of his films do, and he's masterful at making simple stories feel grand. Um, I feel like this needed more. I think Spielberg needs to do more therapy. Like I feel like I feel like if he just talked out these events with the, maybe he already did, and he's just so zen now, it's not interesting to him anymore. Because it feels like he's he's almost like letting the past go. Like I feel yeah, I felt weird about your divorce, but it's fine now, and I'm sort of just I'm just sort of hand waving it off. It's all good, but it's like it doesn't help me, the audience, appreciate it. Um, well, when when it comes to dealing with divorce, sure. Stay Which I never did, to be fair. My parents right. stayed together, so that's, that's uh, my, not my, something... My parents divorced when I was three. And yeah. it, it was, like, a big deal in my life. But yeah. um, he made a movie about divorce. Mm. It was called E.T. E.T. Oh, is a movie about divorce because it's yeah. about a single mom. It's about kids who are mm-hmm. left to their own devices. There isn't a father figure around. Uh, I would argue Close Encounters is also pretty close. Cl- close Encounters is about a dad who goes away. Yeah. Uh, these movies are already much more interestingly about Spielberg's relationship with his parents' divorce mm-hmm. than the literal biography of it. I mean, hell, you could say the same thing about Hook, which is very much a fantasy. About yeah. dad, you're, you're oh so uh, let let me get this straight, Spielberg. You're saying in the Fablemans, you had a really stuffy dad who didn't understand fantasy and mm-hmm. storytelling, and you made a movie about how that dad found out he was actually Peter Pan and realized he was wrong the whole time. Mm. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of Hook, but let's be honest here, it, it tracks. It, it, tra- it certainly <laughs> tracks. Uh, the uh, 
I watched um, I watched his War of the Worlds, and a film of his I don't like, by the way. I, I mostly um, like that one. Uh, but I feel like it works if it's one of those movies, if you consider all of the fantastical stuff to be in the main character's head. It's yeah, like it's, a fantasy. It's, it's pure allegory. Of, yeah, it's, the actual reality, it doesn't work in, in mm. real in as a real thing happening. Oh. But as like a nightmare, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel yeah. like... Um, if you see sort of the Tom Cruise character as this this deadbeat who can't look after his kids, mm-hmm. he needs something extreme to happen to the world In to, order prove, to himself. prove his, his fatherhood. So yeah, him. he imagined an alien invasion. Uh, that that's the way the movie works for me. It's the only way the movie um, works. I think. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there, this is uh, I watched that with the riff tracks. And one of the jokes was, uh, is it, okay, so this is a Spielberg movie, set your watches, there's going to be children in peril and a divorced dad in ten. Uh, and so yeah, that's that's kind of, you know, yeah. people have his number. They do. And listen, that's not the big deal. I, it's, I, 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 we, we can sort of laugh a little bit because we're consistent, but it's because we know him really well. Mm. It's almost like a personal joke now. Like, yeah. uh, hopefully he doesn't, hopefully he knows what he's doing. Uh, or at least he's mid-made aware of it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Th- I'm sure he's read enough reviews to get the gist. Or, I mean, like, even if he's Spielberg, not doing it consciously, but like he doesn't strike me as the kind of filmmaker who would not listen to people when sure. they come to him about what his movies are about. Well, yeah, and and listen, that's 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 totally fine. Um, I forget where I was going with this, but like, yeah. So, so he makes his films, and it just feels like this is just a thing he's doing for himself. Mm. And I guess if anyone's entitled, it's Spielberg oh. to just make one for me. Like this is definitely one for me. Yeah. Um, the other the other aspect of the movie though, and we didn't really talk about it as much, is Spielberg as a young filmmaker. And I love all the sequences of him making independent movies with his friends and like trying to figure out ways to do like explosions and gunfights. How do we make and, yeah. squibs just with house common household objects and that yeah. kind of stuff? All that stuff is really fun. Um, it, it culminates, and I don't want to ruin it because I, I the ending is very sweet. I think the, but, the, the ending is the best scene in like the I, last sequence and the last yeah. shot are like the best part. Of I, the I wish the movie had built up to it a little better because mm-hmm. it kind of just feels like it's its own separate like thing. Uh-huh. But the last scene and a half in mm-hmm. the movie are great. There is a great performance, but I'm not going to tell you who gives it, <laughs> but it's really, really fun. Uh, and there's uh, the last shot in the movie. Mm-hmm. I will just say this. Very clever. Yes. They thought it out. It was very clever. The second I was thinking it, the movie responded. Yeah, it's a good, it was good sort of masterstroke moment. Nicely to done. The movie on. That shot, and then there's one line of dialogue in that scene where he's talking to the bully after he shows that movie in mm-hmm. high school. There's one line of dialogue. That scene and that shot suggest a level of self-awareness okay. of Spielberg not just telling his story, but being playful about it. I wish it was more playful. That's what I think. I honestly think those moments mm. show me a, a vision of this movie where I, I don't want it to be like twee or anything like that, but let's well, let's admit that you're telling the story. Admit yeah, that a... you're really close to it and have more fun because I feel like this movie is trying to make something deadly serious out of something that he seems very relaxed about now like maybe he's just older and wiser and got over it but like it doesn't really feel intense so maybe it should feel wise here's another nostalgia film that is also 
about a filmmaker uh-huh. talking about his own childhood and he's in it. Like, uh, Dance of Reality. Dance of Reality. Yeah. Uh, Jodorowsky made a pair of nostalgia movies. He yeah. made Dance of Reality and made Endless Poetry. Great movies, by the way. Yeah. Both excellent. Uh, and they're about his childhood. And he is in the movie. He appears on camera to talk to his childhood self, to mm-hmm. talk to his father, who is incidentally played by his son. Yeah. So there's this whole you know interfamily dynamic going on in that movie. And... Jodorowsky, who's kooky and has a sort of surrealist's eye, has a way of sort of layering out reality in this interesting way where he realizes that how he remembers things aren't quite accurate Mm -hmm. and uh, how his view of his childhood self is being aggrandized and it says that to the camera. It's very self-aware. Because it's how he remembers it. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily how it happened. How it happened is gone. And he's a, so, film, yeah. he's a storyteller, so he's telling the story. And, and this is how it feels, and everything's really wild and colorful, yeah. and the people are sort of archetypes and cardboard yeah. cutouts in that movie. Yeah. There's a couple of moments in The Fablemans that approach mm-hmm. that, and that's when it's at its most interesting, but mostly it plays it so like close to the vest. Yeah, It just, yeah. like, well, then all you all, all it is is a drama. Well, the divorce isn't that interesting, and the protagonist is so preternaturally gifted that it either feels implausible if you don't know that this is based on a true story mm-hmm. or since you do know that it's based on a true story it feels weirdly self-aggrandizing it, so it doesn't really work it, it occurs to me it would have been a fun twist mm-hmm. if uh, Spielberg's telling his own life uh-huh. but the twist is he's not a good filmmaker that would like he's funny. telling the story and it's like nobody responds well to his movies and like yeah. he's giving himself like a little bit of a, a, a crisis of, of uh, confidence that but I don't, projected into that his doesn't sound self. very Spielberg. No, me. it doesn't. But that would be an interesting story. <laughs> Agreed. That's not I the agree. kind of story he would tell. No, I agree. I agree. Uh, anyway, we 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 desperately have to move on. Uh, there's actually only one other movie that we both saw this week. So why don't we uh, talk about that next? Okay. Uh, let's talk about uh, the new horror comedy, The Menu. Okay. Uh, the Menu uh, stars Anya Taylor Joy uh, as. Uh, a and woman who is... And Nicholas Holt as well. And Nicholas Holt at doing... Nicholas Holt is becoming our generation's Peter Lorre. I am completely <laughs> convinced of this. He is, he's a devastating... sniveling asshole He's in this a devastatingly movie. handsome man. But he is completely unafraid to just be weird and unlikable. Uh, but in the most likable possible way, I love him. <laughs> he's such a great actor. I just All the choices he makes uh, are great. He's great in this movie, and nobody's going to say that because you hate his character no, so but he's, much. He's playing it just right. Like, he's so good. But uh, he... He has invited uh, this woman, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, kind of at the last minute, to join him on a date to a highly exclusive, incredibly expensive restaurant run by one of the world's greatest chefs, yeah. who is played by Ray Fiennes. Uh, the restaurant is on an island, and it's not an attractive island. It's not like... It's not it's like, like a it, deserted island. It looks like the island from uh, Killer Shrews. Like, it mm-hmm. just looks completely just unpleasant. But nestled within that island is a very nice, very small, very exclusive restaurant. And the only way to get there is uh, you have to book the boat, uh-huh. you're fed on the boat, you're taken you're taken on board, and then you're taken on a tour of all of the meal-preparing facilities, yeah. which are the only things on this island. Yeah, that's it. It's it's the chef, the people who work for the chef, and, and that's uh, it. And Hong Chao mm-hmm. plays the, the maitre d', yeah. and she's great. She's so fun. <laughs> uh, so... 
these uh, uh, Anya Taylor Joy and Nicholas Holt and a, 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 a group of other people. There's uh, a, a rich couple who clearly hate each other. There's an incredibly snobby food critic and her absolute toady of a yes man. Mm. There's a, a waning famous actor played by John Leguizamo and his personal assistant. Mm. And then there's like a the three, trio three of tech, tech bros. Tech bros there. So these. Just slime. Va- Just va- slimy people. Vapid rich slime. And you know, yeah. the. the, the the satire of this movie is not subtle. Uh, no, so yeah, I don't think it has are, to be, but it is not. These subtle. are all really horrible people. They've booked this horrible thing. And uh, the Nicholas Holt character, mm. he's the fanboy. He's the foodie. He, he, he knows he, everything. Well, he's sort of a self-styled foodie. Like, he's yeah. studied up on this guy, but he clearly doesn't know a lot. Yeah. And he wants to, uh, in that sort of fanboyish way, wants to somehow catch the eye of his the object of his affection. He I'm, wants Chef yeah. Julian, that's where he finds, to uh, notice it, him in I, some way. I, I am reminded of um, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm. There's an episode called Warrior of the Lost World where there is a giant battle truck called Mega Weapon. <laughs> and towards the end of the, uh, of the episode... They talk about how they hated everything in the movie except Mega Weapon, and they start thinking about how cool Mega Weapon is and as how, like, like as, as a character, yeah, like, they he must be, like calling he's, up Mega Weapon at home. Like he must be a really great guy. I bet if I met Mega Weapon in, in person, he'd really like me. We'd we'd go out for lunch. We'd like pick apples together. It'd just be really nice. Like just that sort of like weird fantasy you have that you're gonna meet the person you idolize and they'll like you. Um, <laughs> Dinner which, commences. Which I, I yeah. think in some of our our uh, sure. sort of more fanciful moments, we think, yeah, if, if I if I got to meet my favorite celebrity, we'd probably get along. I and I've had an opportunity to meet a lot of celebrities. It's always on a professional basis, so yeah. it's very rarely that they feel if they are assholes, they feel comfortable being an asshole. Uh, but because um, who look, who 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 are we? I mean, they, they no, just... like they're, they're on their best behavior when they're being interviewed because they know it'll be in print. Yeah, okay. usually, like sometimes you get someone who's just being weird, but usually they're on their best behavior. So you can't really say like, I, Oh, I know them so well. Mm. Like I, I've met them a couple of times in a situation where it was in their best interest to be polite. Mm. Uh, so for all I know, they're really wonderful. And I've met people and had pleasant conversations and then found out that they were real pieces of dog shit. And I've also met people and they were just lovely. Mm. Um, but I interviewed Tilda Swinton a couple of times. And one of the times I interviewed Tilda Swinton, I, I was a huge fan. Mm. I was like, I'm really excited to talk to you, Tilda Swinton. And she talked about how, uh, she believes you should always meet your heroes. Okay. They always say never meet your heroes because they'll disappoint you. And her, her point was, they might. And that'll be a growing experience for you. <laughs> there you and go. I was like, you know, that's a good point, actually. You shouldn't be afraid of that. If your heroes suck, hmm. great. You've learned something. You've taken them off a pedestal. That's great. Uh, Nicholas Holt and his hero are perfectly matched. They kind of are. <laughs> so uh, Ray Fiennes is this incredibly uh, uh, snooty... He's a conceptual he's chef. He's a conceptual chef. And if you've... If you watch, like, a lot of, like, really fancy type food shows, or if you've ever had the privilege of, like, going to, like, a Mul- super fancy restaurant multi- where, like... Multi-course, thousand-dollar meals kind of thing. Yeah, like, and, and you know, like, and it'll, and it'll be, like, the tiniest portions, but the flavor profile is supposed to blow your fucking mind or whatever, or the idea behind mm-hmm. it's so brilliant and changes the way you look at food. I, I, I have a lot of respect a, for that, by the way. I, I, I really went to a, a Jose Andres restaurant. I'm, I'm, I'm not a foodie, but I've, yeah. I've had my moments. Sure. And uh, I got to go to a Jose Andres restaurant in Las Vegas, and uh, he does something with, he like kind of deconstructs an olive. Oh, weird. He's a single olive, 
and then he somehow, like, using molecular gastronomy, uh-huh. uh, like, reconstructs it in this sort of, like, gelled form. So it's still the shape and flavor of an olive, uh-huh. but somehow the flavor is, like, that much more enhanced. That sounds fascinating. And, and yeah, and you put it in your mouth, and it's like, it has, like, the consistency of an egg yolk, oh, yeah. and, and, it, and it feels like you're having sex. Like, it is, that sounds it amazing. is, like, really intense. I have a lot of respect for that. I think there is, like, in any art, there's a good way and a bad way to do it, but mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for people who do really interesting conceptual things with food. I'm not sure if this movie has any respect for it. No, this, that's this, the weird thing about it. This because movie actually gets a lot of those like very specific details not quite accurate. Like the photography is good, but mm-hmm. the actual setup of how these sort of high end restaurants operate is a little blown out of proportion. It's blown out of proportion, but again, it, this in a is, satirical, way. in a satirical way, this is definitely heightened for the sake of comedy and horror. But uh, th- long story short, too late. Uh, everyone's here for a multi course meal. Uh, the first few courses are interesting not necessarily something to write home about and then things start getting weird mm. like they start noticing that oh uh so we're doing a fun version our version of the taco oh cool and then they see that somehow they have laser printed on the tortillas like their, their wrongdoings their own sins yeah. which is like what yeah are we uh, well, what are we doing the, the first thing is uh, uh the, the big deal with uh this chef is that he likes to present his meals through the lens of class so one of his meals is uh, rather than uh, having just sort of bread to open up that you sort of dip in various olive oils Mm. we're just going to give you the oils and no bread and you just have to like dip a stick well he has a good he has a good speech about it's like Mm. bread is the food of the common the common person Mm. uh you know it's the food that people eat to 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 stuff themselves because it's full of starch because they cannot afford uh, Mm. uh, more uh the bread course is there for for the hoi polloi. Yeah. Since you are all rich, you get no bread. Mm-hmm. But you'll have the dipping sauces. Yeah. And, uh, and Anya Taylor-Joy, who's the main character here, is uh-huh. like, she's having no, she doesn't know any of this. Uh-huh. She was invited last minute. She doesn't know who this Rejects guy is. Rejects it out of hand. She has do- n- is not no, no interest in, in uh, f- yeah. high eating at all. She wants cheeseburgers. Yeah. So yeah, she's like, and sees this is completely humiliated by her. Yeah, and so she's like, I'm not going to eat this. This is ridiculous. Like, no, gotta eat it. You're embarrassing me in front of the chef. And <laughs> things go very tales from the crypt pretty quick. Yeah, things, after things that. start getting um, gruesome and violent. They don't go in the most predictable direction you'd expect. I, they, there's. I'll say this, and this is not a spoiler. There's no cannibalism in this movie. You would think there'd which, be cannibalism. Yeah, oh, you would think, yeah. Most so obvious they're gonna, way they're to go. serve somebody to somebody else at some point. No, and, they, and they do not do that in this no, movie. No, it feels, it feels like there was like a game that the, that the filmmakers were making. Mm. It's like, we want to do a series of courses that get progressively more gruesome yeah. or violent or disturbing as the film progresses. But we never want to resort to cannibalism. How creative can you make this? Yeah. And the answer is sometimes very, sometimes not. So, like well, they, they, the, uh, they go up and down. They go up and down. Uh, it starts like they raise the stakes really, really high, and then they kind of pull back. Like yeah. there's a, a course uh, later on in the evening where people are being hunted for sport, but they're not being killed in that scene. They're just sort of being chased mm. around a little bit. Yeah, that, uh, that doesn't really go very far. There needs to be uh, a sort of sense of ramping action where the mm. stakes are getting higher and higher, and that's absent from the menu. Uh, I wouldn't uh, we, say it's absent, but it's definitely not like it, it, It's definitely it, not like heightened. The, yeah. the stakes are di- up, and then they're down again. And then they're yeah. caught up, and then they're down again. Like, we need to feel like something is is rising. Something's growing, and that doesn't mm, happen in, in the A looming threat, yeah. Uh, and... In so doing, we it becomes very obvious that they have one joke, and mm. they're kind of repeating themselves over and over. This would have been a great Tales from the Crypt episode. Great like Tales for, from the Crypt for episode. For like 30 minutes in and out, you don't yeah. need that much time with a story like this. 
Uh, instead, it's feature length, and I think Ray Fiennes is giving his best Ray Fiennes. He knows what he's doing. Uh, yeah, um, I, I actually got to uh, read a lot of interviews with the screenwriters, and mm-hmm. they said part part way through screenwriting, they're like, well, "Let's just write this as if it were Ray Fiennes." And mm-hmm. They actually got Ray Fiennes, so they were, and he get, nice. gave a better performance than they expected. So they were just mm-hmm. over the moon that they got Ray Fiennes. Uh, so he's he's doing his best. Yeah. He's, he's got that sort he's, of fastidiousness, but also that kind of monstrousness. He, he knows that he's the villain, <coughs> but here's the thing. Because he is angry at... Uh, he, he's, he, he's not just killing people because he's evil. He has a point. Hmm. And he's even though he has risen to the upper echelons of the service industry, he's the service industry. Hmm. And the service industry is treated like crap in, in yeah. everywhere, basically. Uh, and this is an opportunity for the service industry to get revenge on basically customers, but also capitalism. Mm. Um, sometimes that plays out pretty, pretty satisfyingly again, really in your face about it, but it's a horror comedy. It doesn't have to be subtle. Ready or not. Wasn't subtle. Mm. That's also yeah. a great movie. Uh, but uh, you know, th- there are moments when it feels deeply satisfying. Yeah. Well, when, when he's getting his comeuppance on some of these uh, rich people for being just horrible pieces of shit. Yeah. Then that feels satisfying. Yes, it does. But I feel like uh, the critic characters played by Jenny McTeer yeah. and uh, and the John Leguizamo character, like they're actually like very humane and intelligent and respond to this in interesting ways. Mm. Uh, so they're, I'm not waiting for those people to get their comeuppance. I'm waiting for Jenny McTeer to get her comeuppance. I think that oh, that's right. a character who. She's she's the evil film critic, dude. <laughs> That's what she's doing here. She's, and, oh, fun, and finally, maybe it's because I'm a critic, but it's like no, no she's, she's making a good point here. She, she's uh, like, got a few points, but she's also she she's she's putting on very distinct airs, mm-hmm. and it's not helping anybody. Uh, the John Leguizamo character is interesting because there's actually when they finally get to it, I'm not going to ruin it, but when they finally get to why are you specifically here, like being targeted? Why are you being targeted? Mm-hmm. And Ray finds his explanation for why is actually really great and it reminds us that um you know we need to hold art to higher standards <laughs> yeah and i and i actually kind of like that as a commentary on art i think it's a little unfocused but there's a lot i really like enjoy about this movie mm-hmm. as a commentary about the service industry everything from food service to sex work uh, i think it's arts in the right place and i think a lot of people will really be able to appreciate it mm-hmm. even if sometimes the actual setups are a little wonky um Overall, I mostly like this movie. I think it doesn't quite... It it, it definitely doesn't feel like, you know, this is classic territory, but it's just a... And you're right, it probably would have been better as a really good short. Yeah. But as a feature film, I think it knows what it's doing. I think it does it well. I think it knows when it's being absurd. The ending is ridiculous. (laughs) And I rather enjoyed it, but the ending is ridiculous. There's one plot point in this movie. I'm not going to tell you what it is. There's one plot point in this movie... And we've talked before about how plot is not the most important thing in the movie. Mm. It's it's often just a delivery system for the characters and the themes. There's one plot point in this movie that was so just like, it's not even super clever. It just works beautifully that I actually applauded in the theater. I was like, you know what? <laughs> that's a really good bit of writing. Right. That, that was, that, that's very satisfying. And like, mm. it's always good when like the characters are like, when characters are in a situation that's like life and death like this, where they have time to think it out, mm. you're you're thinking, how would you get out of it? Or yeah. how would they get out of it? Like, what aren't they doing that would help them survive this? And sometimes you come up with something and it's annoying. Every once in a while, a character will do something. It's like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. And that's smart. Yeah. yeah. And there's, someone who, there's, a, there's a scene in this movie where someone does something incredibly clever. And I was like, you know what? Fucking kudos. <laughs> like, seriously. Well, that's a good bit of writing right there. So yeah. I, I, I don't... 
I love this movie, but I think it satisfies. I think oh, yeah. this, I this like, does what it sets out to do. It sometimes it's ridiculous, mm. but I had a really good time. It's it's very light. I think it's kind of insubstantial. I wish there mm. were a little bit more menace to a movie mm. like this. This should be a lot darker than it is. It should be a lot more horrific. I, I think, uh, and I think the, they emphasize the, the comedy a little the, bit more. That's not too bad. I, I think the comedy would play better if it were juxtaposed with much more horrific things. Maybe. Look at something like Ready or Not, which is another uh, enclosed yeah. wealthy people doing yeah. violent things. Great movie. movie. Legitimately and, great and, movie. And, and, and I like Ready or Not a lot. There's a lot of violence in that movie. And those rich people are pieces of shit, and they sure. get to talk about what pieces of shit they are. Very true. Uh, they, they actually think a lot, a lot more of the details out that are absent from something like the menu. And uh, as such, I think it doesn't cohere quite well. I think it's a, a, a little bit loose, and it could be a lot tighter. That's that's totally fair. I think it just boiled down to I liked it a little bit more than you. Mm. Like it, just, it, it rang my bell. Okay. Um, well, listen, uh, I... Tragedy of tragedies. I couldn't get to see Wakanda forever. I was, okay. I was, I was sick, and then I had a whole bunch of other stuff going on in my life. And I, I will see it obviously because I think Ryan Coogler is a really interesting filmmaker. And honestly, I was excited to see uh, Namor in a in a movie. Namor the Submariner. I thought they were never yeah. going to be able to get to use him, and I everything I saw from like the trailers mm-hmm. made it look like. They did something kind of interesting. Well, uh, the, the Submariner, by the way, is actually one of the very first Marvel superheroes. In, like, in predates what, Captain America. Yeah, what, uh, 1939 was uh, the Submariner. Submariner yeah. and the, the Human Torch. The original were, robot uh, version of the Human Torch. Yeah, yeah. They were the first two, like, superheroes as we know them in, in like, sort of the modern pop uh, rendition of the word. Uh, certainly, uh, in the Mar- at least in Marvel Comics, anyway. Yeah. But, like, uh, so, yeah, but, like, the rights for the Namor were, like, tied up with Universal for a long time. And mm-hmm. they bought the rights to the character back when Marvel was, like, going through bankruptcy or whatever and they were going to make a movie about it they never did and it seemed like they were never going to get to do it yeah and then it turns out oh he's in he's in the new black panther movie i'm like oh that's cool then like i saw like how ryan coogler was like visualizing it and it looked like it's actually really interesting and i started getting really excited just (laughs) to see how this character would be introduced because there's there's potential there but i ended up not being able to see the movie so you're gonna have to tell me we uh we say namor Uh, it's in this movie it's namor which is actually short for sinamor a child without love so it's it's an abbreviation of sinamor that's Um, interesting it's funny yeah Yeah, the the, uh namor and that'll take some getting used to yeah because uh, I even in like cartoons and stuff they used to they call him Namor. Namor. Yeah. So like that's something where I'm gonna have to get. It's, it's like when um, uh, Carmine Falcone in the comics uh-huh. was pronounced Carmine Falcone in Batman Begins, Fal- and it Falcone, took me a while, yeah, yeah. It was took me a while to wrap my head around that, but it is supposed to be pronounced Falcone. Oh, is it in, okay. in the comics and like the newer version or something? They they fixed that, but um, so whatever. We'll have to get used to that, I guess. So it's the more, but. The more is like superhero name back before they realized that Namor was perfectly superhero sounding enough, even though it mm. wasn't specific. Uh, was the Submariner so or Submariner, if, if you like? But, no, uh, no, it's a Submariner, it's submariner, hyphenated. Yeah. So he's a mariner, you know, he works in, in maritime mm. fishing milieu, uh, and but underneath the ocean, so he's the Submariner. Got it? Uh, and then I saw Albert Pune's Captain America. Mm-hmm. And they referred to they were reading a comic and they referred to him as the submariner oh. and I'm like he's not steel plated <laughs> he doesn't have a nuclear core dude he's not a submariner yeah. he's the submariner come on get get with it damn it 
when you're a little kid and you don't know the word mariner, you might say submariner. I understand you? that, but like the but here's the deal: as a filmmaker, since the filmmakers are adults, uh-huh. they should be getting it right. I also remember when they first started making X Men action figures. This is before they did the X Men animated series, hmm. uh, or at least before the good one. They had that like failed pilot in the eighties. Yeah, pride of the X Men. Pride of the X Men. Not bad. Mm. Weird choices. Wolverine's Australian for some reason. They didn't have Wolverines there. But um, well, whatevs. <laughs> it, it, it's a weird quirk, but mostly it's fun. It's well animated. Got, actually. It's got an pretty. Australian actor to play him eventually. It, it's true, actually. Too shy. But uh, where was, was it going? They made like an X Men action figure line before there was an animated series that was a different vibe, mm. different they style. Looked like, looked like they did in the comic books. Yeah, yeah but also they changed. They were weird action figures. When they came up with the character of they, they for the villains, they had Magneto. Uh-huh. Uh, but they didn't have a cartoon or live action thing to go off of. So in the in the commercial, they say, "And you, the X Men can fight the evil Magneto." Right. And I'm like, "A Magneto is an actual word. <laughs> That's not a made up word. That's an actual word." Magneto, come on, hmm. get with it. Get with the program. Anyway, so tell me about. Tell I, I, I remember about taking yeah. a tour at Hearst yeah. Castle and it referred to a sarcophagi, and that just drove me nuts. Oh. Instead of a, and, and referred and the plural it was here's one sarcophagi and two sarcophagies. It's like I just wanted to throttle There's that. A guy. lot wrong with that. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, listen. Tell me right. about Black Panther. Wakanda Black Forever. Panther. Wakanda Forever. So uh, Chadwick Boseman passed mm. away. Uh, Tragedy. Way tra- too young. Yeah. And and he kept his illness uh, secret from the public. His business. I admire him for totally that. Totally his business. Uh, he, yeah, yeah. Passed away. Uh, he was nominated for a posthumous Oscar. Should have won. Uh, it. Should have won. Really I, everyone everyone thought he was. I think Anthony Hopkins is good too. I'm not. Gonna, that, that, no disrespect to other actors, but he was yeah, really who, amazing. Who won that, that year? But, I think. Um, I think he would have. It's, it's for a film called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Very good film. Uh, but uh, he passed away, and rather than try to recast the character, in this is the 30th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, that's not an exaggeration. It's the 30th film, and. Uh, Rather than recast the actor, uh, Black Panther, the character, huh. uh, dies of an unna- unnamed illness okay. off screen. Uh, the, okay. the opening sequence is his sister, Shuri, mm-hmm. who's played by Letitia Wright, uh, trying to cure whatever disease he's dying from, oh. like in the lab. That's rough. Uh, when his mom, who's played by Angela Bassett, comes in and says he's he's gone. And there's a big opening sequence where we're having Black Panther's funeral. Wow. Uh, Wakanda is a fictional African nation that's located on a store of vibranium, this magical metal that lets them build these technological marvels. Uh, so yeah. they they've been technologically ahead yeah. of the rest of the world for centuries. Yeah, so they have they have like flying saucers and you know mm. all of this like really fantastical technology. Yeah, uh, it's it's a little bizarre to see uh, Black Panther's coffin being sucked up into a UFO and it's soaring off and. I, Fuck you, they do that. I, I, and I kind of expected them to cut to the cockpit and it's like alien greys from the X-Files. Ow, we have it now. Is that really like, how they do the funeral? Yeah. They, That's they, like, so they, weird. They suck up his coffin into like a flying saucer. Weird. Okay. <laughs> so well, it's, 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 it's different. Okay. Yeah. I did not expect, Look, did not expect I, that. I don't know from Wakandan funeral right? No, I don't know either. Just, I, that's not um, what I would have thought they would have gone. That's so interesting. Okay. Uh, the drama of the film is about uh, Wakanda has announced that they have vibranium, yeah. but they don't trust the rest of the world with it. And yeah. Uh, there's it's an their early, natural research. There's an early sequence where uh, some like 
military guys in black hoods are trying to find some. And they've invented a, a vibranium detector, mm. which is a great violation of their trust. So ah. uh, Wakanda says, no, we're not going to let you have any vibranium, if especially if you're building these vibranium detectors. Who built that vibranium detector? Turns out it was a teenager who go, who's going to college in Cambridge. Ah. And this is, uh, uh, I forgot the character. Riri Williams? Riri Williams is yeah. the character's name. She's a, a character named Ironheart from the comic books, who yeah. I'm not unfamiliar with. Uh, Marvel only mm. relatively recently started doing kind of legacy characters where like a character would take up the mantle of another hero and like a new generation. Yeah. Uh, and Riri Williams was only introduced to be sort of like uh, the next the, generation the of Iron Man. Iron Man. So yeah, yeah. she's Iron Heart. Uh, they don't call her Iron Heart. Uh, but no, they're, they're getting to that. But yeah, like, the, yeah. But they, she, they go to her garage and she's like, oh, well, now there's uh, CIA agents uh, after us. Uh, also, wouldn't you know it, there's people from under the sea chasing us as well. There was a scene earlier where uh, Shuri and Angela Bassett uh, were sitting by a lake and Namor, the Submariner, steps out and says, Hey, those people who are looking for vibranium, we got some too in our undersea kingdom mm. of Talokan. Oh, not Atlantis. It's, it's not Atlantis. Okay, that's cool. It's a Mesoamerican undersea kingdom. That's awesome. And the design and the... I think like... There's a something Ryan Coogler does with Wakanda and also with Talokan is make these fictional uh, cultures feel like they're very real. Yeah. Like he thinks the out, whole culture oh, feels real. Yeah, it's like, not just the buildings that look futuristic. It's like the design and the way that people look and the way they behave and the languages they speak and like their mannerisms are all very unique. And, right. uh, very well, unique. that's one of the things but, uh, that I think elevates uh, Black Panther. Mm. One of the many things I think elevated the original Black Panther above most other superhero movies was it had a, not only a, a, a design aesthetic; it had a whole ethos. It, had, was, yeah, it, it was Afrofuturism writ larger than we've ever been able to yeah, see it in like uh, a mainstream Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah, that was really exciting, and it's a very mm. distinct uh, take. So this is kind of this the, Meso- the Mesoamerican Mesoamerica that. futurism, that's which really I've never cool. seen before, and that's really cool. Yeah, I, I love how you know the way they made uh, uh, Namor look. He's uh-huh. Um, uh, he's played by uh, an actor named uh, Tenel Cuerta. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Tenel Cuerta, who is in yeah. uh, the Forever Purge. Okay. He gets an uh, an introducing credit here, even though he's been in numerous oh, they, pictures. They, Hollywood before. does that all the fucking yeah. time. They just want to be. They they just want to. Yeah, they want credit, and he's he's credited as Tenel Cuerta Mejia on oh. screen, but on all, right. all the press materials they left leave off the Mejia part. I, so, I don't know. Weird. Uh, but yeah, he says, hey, if you can't get these, like, inventors under control and mm. stop people from, like, look, you know, poking in our business because we've been under the sea for, like, generations and we uh-huh. don't want anybody to know about us, uh-huh. then we're we're going to take care of it ourselves and we're going to, like, go to war with you. So this is we're about... Gonna go with, we're going to go with Wakanda? With Wakanda. Why? Uh, it's, Wakanda uh, didn't start it. But it was Wakanda who sort of like attracts this surface world's attention. Oh, so, so, by, so at, the end, at the end of the first movie, when Wakanda uh, stopped being isolationist, yeah, they, they uh, it, kind of it, it opened the floodgates. Yeah, so they, okay, they kind of like thin, attracted okay. some attention to this undersea. Kingdom. It's a little thin, but okay. It, that, and that's the thing about the story of this movie; it, yeah. it goes all over the place. It is a little, th- and so yeah. uh, there's a sequence where. Uh, uh, Riri Williams is kidnapped by Namor and they go oh. down to the undersea kingdom and Shuri goes down there as well and we get to sort of swim around and look at all this really cool stuff. Mm. Really cool visuals. I oh, mean, that. it's... 
I'm comparing this to something, yeah. to, to something like something completely stupid like Aquaman. I was about to ask, like, uh, how do you handle? Because <laughs> this is something that most people haven't really done a lot of in live action until relatively recently. These like undersea kingdoms that are actually underwater, not hard, like you can't film underwater. It's hard exactly, to do. it's uh, very very difficult to do. It's difficult to fake. Usually mm-hmm. they'll do things like oh, there's a hidden pocket of air underneath this underwater mm-hmm. mountain, and then you just sort of fudge it. Yeah. Um, but we're starting to see more people do that we yeah, started you yeah. uh aquaman did that uh zach when zach snyder introduced the undersea world of the dceu mm-hmm. um his visual take on it was very different yeah. it was much more murky yeah. and much more um uh, <coughs> much more quiet because mm. of the sound was muffled interesting take not yeah, sure the, uh, not sure a whole the, movie would have sustained it the way they constructed yeah. and the, ryan coogler constructs it in this film is uh because of their vibranium they've been able to construct essentially an undersea sun that oh. lights and powers their their city. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, and, so and it's like all in three like three directions. People are actually like paddling to swim around. It's not like an Aquaman where they're just uh-huh. sort of like flying from place to place. Yeah. And, uh, and so does it look cool? Does it look like really easy? It, it looks really cool. It looks nice. looks pretty real. Um wow. uh, this is as good as like an undersea kingdom has ever looked in a movie. Yeah, well, I haven't seen the new Avatar film that's yet. The, uh, that's the that's the question. Is I'm guessing. Well, I've, James Cameron has been working so hard on it. I'm guessing that it's going to at least be comparable. But we'll I, see. I'm, he's going to be ugly, could be ugly as sin. He's going to try. Uh, I mean, it's, I'm sure it'll be colorful. He's he's yeah, that's what true. the last like, Avatar movie was. It was very pretty to look at. So yeah. we'll see, but like it's certainly interesting that like two movies are really yeah, the, uh, trying to ambitiously present this in a way they haven't before. So we have this sort of like you know, socio-political legacy plot that's sort of running underneath some of this. There's yeah. the mourning the Black Panther plot. Mm-hmm. There's uh, some headbutting between Angela Bassett and Letitia Wright as to their views of the world now that Black Panther is gone. Okay. There's the idea of who's going to you know, pick up the mantle of the Black Panther. Is the Black Panther Because it's a legacy necessary? character. His father was yeah. Black Panther. There'll be another yeah, Black Panther so, after uh, him. And there was yeah. no... I, and. Uh, part of the Black Panther ritual involved uh, these sort of magical flowers that were growing up yeah. out of the vibranium it soaked earth that uh, when sort of mixed together and drank gave Black Panther like some, su- some kind like of super superpower. Yeah. It's like, yeah, super strong and like an acrobat. Uh, and so those flowers were destroyed at the end of the first movie. So, yeah. or, uh, so is that the end of the Black Panther? So I guess that's the end of the Black Panther, uh, but maybe it's not. And right. so you know, is, is it is it's it this is idea? It, is it a rich tapestry or is it unfocused? Because it sounds like it could it's be it's very unfocused. Okay. Uh, there there's not a general thrust, and it's and it's long too. It's like two hours and forty five minutes. Uh, and so there's all of these scenes where uh, people are talking about the Black Panther. We're going around the world. It's much more interesting when you're sort of sinking yourself into Ryan Coogler's sort of interesting sci-fi worlds that he's creating. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, it would be a lot more interesting if you were allowed to just sort of live in one place for a little bit and not have a superhero story. Like uh, uh, some of more some of the more recent uh, Marvel movies, it's actually worst when it gets to like the action and the superhero stuff. Yeah, when people start putting on the suits and the attack is happening, and mm-hmm. there's like hundreds of characters all killing each other and throwing bombs. We're at the point now uh, where the Marvel Cinematic Universe is mm-hmm. as sprawling and weird as the Marvel comic book universe. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't need fights anymore. It's one of the reasons why I like She Hulk. Because, yeah, it's, like, it's about she, an attorney. It's, it's just, it's just it's about this detail of the yeah, universe now, like, or superheroes now need their own separate litigation. Yeah, exactly. Like that sort of thing. It was basically just like, yeah, what's it like to just sort of live there and have a regular job? Like <laughs> that's interesting yeah. to me. It's way more interesting. Fights are fine, but like, yeah, so, here's the thing: as the Marvel Cinematic Universe 
goes longer and longer and longer. And it's been gone for like 15 years now, give or take. Um, the, the people who grew up with it are going to grow up with it. Mm. And the adolescent stuff that might have excited us when we were younger might not hit us as hard when we're yeah, adults. And we might want more mature stuff out of it. On the other hand, the target demo is probably always, you know, teenagers and people in their 20s. Yeah. yeah. So there's going to be this weird thing where the older people want different stuff than the younger people. Mm-hmm. This is a problem that happened with comic books in general. Yeah. yeah uh, where like, it's just yeah. their, 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 their target demo just keeps getting broader and broader and people want different things from the exact same characters. Yeah. So uh, and it's harder to, to, to appease the, everybody. One of my favorite movies of, of the Marvel Universe recently was Eternals. Yeah, you really liked them a lot. I really liked yeah. Eternals because it had this really interesting sci-fi story. It took place yeah. over the course of thousands thousands of years we got to go back to early civilization how these eternal characters were always kind of there and they were passing along technology and telling stories they we got sort of uh, a glimpse of how superheroes influenced human development yeah and it was all at the behest of an uncaring god yeah uh, that's all interesting stuff yeah that's if, all this really inter- and so by the time there we wasn't get a to bunch the of end, monster fights it would have been pretty good yeah so there's monster <laughs> fights in it and there's like superhero shooting laser beams out of their eyes, doing superhero stuff and costumes. They look like uh, DC characters. There's the flying guy with the eye beams. That's Superman. There's a fast yeah. runner. That's the Flash. Yeah. Uh, were the Eternals Jack Kirby creations? I, I think they were, yeah. Yeah, because Jack Kirby kind of... There was a period in the 70s where Marvel and DC kept kind of like coming out with kind of the same characters Ripping over each and over other again. off. Like, hey, who came Thanos first? Then it's a dark side. Yeah. They're practically the same guy. They Thanos, really are. Thanos came first by a, a little less than a year. But yeah, like, yeah, they're but like, about the same time. So these, they're these big kind of purple guys who are gray, I guess. Dark mm-hmm. side is gray. Uh, who are these like intergalactic despots. And uh, But they're different because uh, Thanos uh, was searching for uh, like the, the key to death so he can kill like half the universe. Uh, mm-hmm. And whereas Dark side was, was uh, searching for uh, the anti-life equation. So they're different. <laughs> They are actually different characters, but like from the basics, they're, more they're very the similar. Yeah. yeah, so like yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're way off in the weeds. We're uh, off my, in the my, weeds. My, yeah. point my point is, uh, my point is, it's less the superhero stuff makes the movie less interesting. Yeah, like there, there's some fun scrapes. Um, mm-hmm. Denai Gurira is back as, as a cool. character named Okoye, and I really yeah. like that character. She's a lot. great. She was she, in the... she's like the flip self aware one who kind of like is really tough but gets to make jokes. She got some good stuff in uh, the. Uh, 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 Falcon and Winter Soldier TV series. Oh, she's in she that was, one. She oh, was. She shows yeah. up in like the second yeah, half. I haven't seen any of really the TV shows. It's a pretty good series, actually. Yeah. I like that one. Yeah. I saw, I saw like uh, like a fifth of an episode of Wandavision. I'm like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> I, I don't want to see this stuff. What's weird is I thought that would be the one you'd actually like. Like I, I like the concept, but then I learned where it was going. It's oh, like, oh, this is to, like, it's just MCU yeah. shit now. It's not well, like we're not having a fun artistic experiment, are we? A little bit of both, yeah. but yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I don't want both. I want one. I, I, I get it. You, you, you might have to pick your battles sometimes, yeah. buddy. Well, it's, I did. I didn't watch the show. Oh, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I'm not, I didn't watch, didn't watch any of the shows. I haven't seen the, I, the Moon Knight. or, fine. or well, Moon Knight wasn't great. New, new Daredevil is coming. Uh, don't, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, I, I feel like this one is... is Rather unfocused. The action is weak. Uh, the big climax feels incredibly perfunctory. Mm. Even when there's really fun characters that you like and there's a lot of interesting visual stuff going on, I don't. I would rather have them talk and do diplomacy than yeah. fight yeah. because that's clearly where Ryan Coogler's interests are. He's not. He's more interested in creating these uh, fictional worlds yeah. than he than he is. You know, sort of adding to this 
corporate mandated architecture that's he, been co- constructed around this series. He's a little too mature for this. Mm-hmm. Like, I think in the first Black Panther, he appreciated building up these heroes, but also he really wanted to challenge their existence. Yeah. yeah. And so, again, I haven't seen Wakanda forever, but I just get the impression that, like, there's stuff that really interests him about this and also stuff that doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And, and already, and I know Ironheart is going to have a, a either a movie show. or a TV series. I think a TV show, yeah. uh, She's cool. I like her. Okay. Uh, she's a cool character. This, like, sort of plucky 19-year-old college student mm-hmm. who can build a, a kind of Iron Man suit in a garage at some point. Yeah, some uh, people are like, eh, can you really do that? Yeah, like Iron it, Man was doing that shit when he was a teenager, too. Yeah, well, he was, and, a, he was and, a scientific genius when he was a kid. And there's two he built an uh, Iron Man suit in a yeah, cave. There, there's like, two two versions of the of the Ironheart suit, uh, and the first one we see it it looks a little bit like um, the um, the power loader suit that uh, Sigourney oh. Weaver wore in Aliens. Oh, that's cool. So it's like this big kind of scaffolding she wears like an exoskeleton. Her body. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's we cool. see a lot of her body, and it's like that's this neat. big bulky thing, and it's you know rockets around. Sure, in the Marvel universe, a teen a nineteen year old could build that in a garage. I'm um, waiting for them to introduce Amadeus Cho. He's I, a he's a super he's a super smart teenager okay. in the Marvel cinema in the Marvel uh, comics, mm. and I just think he's a fun character. But, okay. anyway. uh, but so, all right, so so mixed bag. What are we uh, looking mixed at? bag? Okay. A, lot, a lot of really fun, interesting moments, but like it feels like we're seeing the DVD director's cut where there's just way too much of it. Uh-huh. Uh, you either fo- you really need to focus on the story, or you need to abandon that part entirely and just yeah. have the moments and have the, the characters interacting and that would be a lot more interesting. Fair enough. All right, well, listen, you saw more movies than I did, so I'm going to let you take the next one or two right. before I, I'll take over. So um, what, what, what what do you want to talk about next? You're, you're, you choose. You choose. <clears throat> Why don't I talk about uh, My Father's Dragon because that was last week. All right, so. <clears throat> so I'll catch up. This is uh, directed by uh, Nora uh, Toomey, I think is mm-hmm. how it's pronounced. Yeah, maybe. I don't know, actually. Uh, T-W-O-M-E-Y. Yeah, it might uh, be Toomey, might be Twomey, I don't know. And uh, she co-directed The Secret of Kells. Yes, and she also directed The Breadwinner, which is amazing. Yeah, The Breadwinner is really, really good. Yeah, those are two um, very good movies. And what I like about <clears throat> Secret of Kells, what I like about mm-hmm. uh, The Breadwinner is it t- takes these very sort of broad, round-faced, uh, very stylized character designs. Mm-hmm. Very Saturday morning character designs. In, but in the basic construct, yeah. Uh, but drops them into these really kind of heady spiritual stories. Uh, the Breadwinner is a story about class and danger, and there's actual death in that movie. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's actually very grounded, though. Yeah. yeah. Whereas The Secret of Kells is a story about... It has about, a magical uh, element. It's about it, Celtic yeah. magic, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but set against the real world backdrop mm-hmm. of oppression and uh, and violence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. All, all of that is is in there. Yeah. Um, Gorgeously animated that Secret mm-hmm. of Kells in particular. Holy crap! Is that a good looking movie? Which one? Secret Kells. Oh yeah. Because yeah. they, they it also looks like also, an illuminated manuscript. Yeah. If you look yeah. at the particular art style of illuminated manuscripts uh, from like you know Middle Ages, um, their sense of like perspective mm-hmm. and and color and everything are just very different than what we have now equally good but very very different yeah, yeah. and using that as the design aesthetic for an animated movie and really bringing it to life the way that mm-hmm. they did is stunning and unlike yeah, yeah. anything else it's like so they, great they did that a little bit uh, Terry Gilliam did a little bit in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail yeah, a little, little, but little in, in, in that one he had like yeah. the characters like actually like walking around on the page well, he like, he, like, but, like yeah. cut them out or yeah, whatever yeah. Like, it's, it works but it's, it's Secret of Kells but that's, that's for that's for yeah. ridiculous purposes yeah um, uh, my father's dragon. Yeah, is not that. Uh, not what? Uh, not good. Uh, oh it's, no! It's, in fact, it's it's pretty bad. Oh um, no! That's 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 unfortunate. So it's uh, 
narrated by uh, from the modern day, uh, telling and it tells the story of the narrator's father when he was a young boy. Okay. And uh, they move from uh, a city they know, and these cities are never named. They move from a city they know to sort of this urban center that they don't know. Got it. And there's all these uh, new characters sort of chasing them around. Uh, the main character is uh, n- named Elmer. That's the the father. Uh-huh. He's the guy and, who gets a dragon. Uh, he does. Spoilers. Uh, and uh, there's... There's no title. It's a joke. Th- they're living in this apartment. They can't make rent. Everything's very desperate. And uh, while well, he's... Uh, ch- and, you know, he's losing all of the money. And um, when he's sort of, like, goes on this mad chase, uh, you know, down to the seaside, you know, he's trying to, t- to chase after something that's very valuable to mm. him, he runs into a cat. And the cat talks to him. Mm. Sort of out of the blue. The cat's played by Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, nice. And uh, the cat says, hey... Um, a magical dragon can probably help you. Mm. It's like, okay. And, and I feel like it's very vague, like how the dragon is going to help them. But the dragon has magic. Mm. And the dragon lives on this island way out in the middle of the sea. And so get on the back of this talking whale that uh. has just appeared, rides out to the island, and the island mm. is sinking. Oh, dear. It's That's, a crisis. Mm, not, the island is, all, is really. usually magically kept aloft by the dragon's wings, and the dragon is absent. <gasps> And uh, Ian McShane plays a, a, a baboon who okay. is trying to keep the animal societies together. And uh, Elmer sort of goes on this very Picaresque journey where he meets like animal by is animal. Is it just him or is it like just, the, do- not, just, the daughter isn't there either? Just or? him. Okay. Uh, well, the, the father's a little boy. He's like dad. Oh, okay. I misunderstood. Yeah. Okay, fair yeah. enough. So Fa- this is so, like a story of like, this is a story of my dad when he was a boy. My dad when he was a boy. Got it. Okay. Just got it. And yeah, so he's, he's traveling around the island. He does eventually find the dragon. And the dragon is this striped hip-talking doofus that reminds me of something out of a Burger King commercial. <laughs> is, it, is he poochy? Pardon? Is he, is he like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cool-talking dog? He's not co- not like cool-talking, but like is clearly like laid-back and modern. Yeah. Did you see Raya in The Last Dragon? You know, I actually didn't. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, well, I'm but, always meant to. Yeah. But that, you know, that kind okay. of annoying, very anachronistic kind of a... a what, what era does it take place comedic, in? Like, um, what, what era is it? I think like? it's the 80s. Okay. It's not, not, I don't think it's really uh, explicit. Yeah, it's just, but, usually there's, a, there's an overall aesthetic that they adhere to. But yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, the film is actually pretty just pretty much just a straightforward kid's adventure of trying to get this dragon back to the mainland and the dragon coming to realize his own power. He didn't really realize that he was keeping the island up. He was just sort of there. He thought his wing was broken. Mm-hmm. thought he had less power than he did and the boy ends up having to talk the dragon into granting his own wishes mm-hmm. that kind of thing uh golly it's dull <laughs> um, huh. i mean th- there's a place for this kind of uh children's adventure and i did like the way a lot of the animation looks like there's a, a a pack of tigers in the movie and they have these huge round heads that are really cool there's a, a crocodile uh let me look up somebody notable plays the crocodile i'll look it up you, you keep talking uh, like diane weist plays a uh, rhinoceros rita moreno is in it judy greer is the whale alan cumming is the crocodile ah okay well, it's a good cast. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, good good cast. Uh, Adam Brody is in it. Um, uh, Elmer's played by Jacob Tremblay, uh, and the dragon Boris is played by uh, Gaetan Matarazzo. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it um, unfortunately it has it's not quite as bad as something like um, like any one of those DreamWorks films that's just sort of packed with celebrities. It's not quite that hip. It's not quite that caustic. 
the, the animation style goes a long way from saving it from being really obnoxious. If it had right. looked a little bit more traditional, this would be intolerable. But the script is quite bad, and the story is really pat and straightforward, mm. like fantasy. Who it's, it's it like, sounds I, like it's it sounds like a like a short story. Yeah, or a children's book. Like maybe, a children's book. Yeah. Like it, like it's like a very straight. Mm. I've seen children's book uh, movies that adapt children's books, like young kids books. Mm. And I don't know what this is based on, but um, if anything, but I've seen movies based on kids books, and you usually have to add a little something to get them mm. to feature length. Yeah, like some the, movies like do better the, than others. Like the Lorax is not not, good, not a great but... example of it. You know what was a good example of it? And actually, mm. the cute child. It's not a great movie, but it's a good kids movie. Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Oh, okay, I, I didn't see that one. It's, it's cute. So, like the, the original book is there's this kid, and as all kids know, life sucks. So he gets up and he has a shitty day. Every single thing goes wrong. It's absolutely miserable. And then he goes to bed, and it goes all over again. And he, he realizes that he just life goes on. You know, it's a good it's a good reminder that you can have a bad day and it's not the end of the world. Mm. Uh, not a lot to build a movie on, so they decided <laughs> to add a little magical element to it, like a liar liar element to it. Where uh, like relives the same day, but it's really really good. No, not no, quite. Okay. No, no, it's it's better than that actually. So what happens is he has the worst day ever, uh-huh. and his very large family uh, doesn't really appreciate how bad it was for him. So he, I forget if he makes a wish or something like that, but basically. He manages to take his bad day and give it to everyone else in his family all at once. So every single person in his family, except for Alexander, is having the absolute worst day of their lives at the same time. And you know what? Kind of funny. Okay. Cute. Got a it's, lesson out of it. But it, like, it, it takes the basic premise and it adds an element that has nothing to do with it. But we get the same gist. Yeah. You know? Uh if you're going to tell this sort of adventure story, sort of fantastical story of like meeting dragons and talking animals... I feel like there needs to be a little bit more of a slower pace, and there mm. needs to be a sense of awe. Mm. Uh, awe. Awe is in short supply these days. It's yeah. rare. I think that's why I liked uh, Black Panther, because yeah. there are moments of awe. Like yeah. They're brief, but they're in there. Yeah, uh, it's like we, we can do anything, and we mm. forgot to make it yeah. not look commonplace. Uh, yeah. uh, remind me of this when we get to Slumberland. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask but, you to do it next day. Okay, so well, I'll do, do Slumberland next. next. We'll, that'll be a good segue. Um, but yeah, I, I think when you're going to have a young boy step up to all these talking animals, he needs to be kind of amazed. He doesn't need to say, what in the what? And then just go on with it the next scene. <laughs> uh, it's it, it needs to be uh, something that's that feels kind of fantastical. Yeah. Uh, the movie, a lot of kids' movies, a lot of fantasy movies are too cool now. Yeah. They, they don't want to stop and feel a little bit of wonderment yeah. uh, at how amazing these things that, that's are. That's one of the things I liked about Peter Jackson's, especially his first Lord of the Rings trilogy, mm. was it wasn't afraid to just stop. Mm. And even like, listen, we, we're, we're trying to get through the minds of Moria all quiet, like, because we don't want anyone to destroy us. But this room is really cool, so I'm going to turn on the light a little bit more. Yeah. And we're just going to take a look at how awesome this room is. Well, pretty cool, a, right? There's a shot I, in one of the Lord of the Rings movies where they're sailing down a river. And there's oh, these two, giant, like, three, yeah, 300-foot yeah, tall Some fellowship towards yeah. the end, yeah. And, uh, you know, they're CGI, and I, yeah. you know, they're not entirely convincing. Well, that, but yeah. the, the camera at least bothers to sort of, like, look at those statues and sort yeah. of take in the whole vista. We're supposed to appreciate how cool bit, that you know, is. It's like a big yeah. musical crescendo. You know, the you idea, the, the vibe you want, right. but the idea is yeah. we're we're taking a moment to appreciate the visual wonder. What's of this the point moment. of making a fucking three-hour movie if you can't stop and look around once in exactly. a while? Exactly. You know? yeah. yeah. So I, I feel like this one doesn't have sort of like 
the childlike inquisitiveness of something for maybe a younger audience. Yeah. And it doesn't have the awe of maybe a, a, um, that might capture an older audience. And it doesn't have the emotional sophistication that might capture an adult audience. So it is mm. in this kind of weird nether region where it's just sort of flat yeah. and, it's, and it's not good. All right. Well, uh, there's another uh, uh, kids movie on Netflix. And this mm. one's based on one of the best and biggest uh, comic strips in history. Yeah. Uh, people don't talk about it as much now. They should. Uh, but uh, Little Nemo. Mm. Uh, Little, Vin- Little Nemo in Slumberland. Yeah, uh, by ran, Windsor McKay. Yeah, uh, Windsor McKay r- started running in 1905 yeah. and ran for like 25 years. Um, so and it was comic, strips, comic strips and newspapers, by the way, like in the early part of the 20th century. They were gorgeous. If if you can if you ever see a pic like if you can go to a library and see a vintage newspaper, yeah. great. You probably can't. So look up some pictures of it. Yeah. Uh, the the papers were big, by the way, yeah. and you would get like a whole page of like a the newspaper. Col- the like, color yeah. comic strips took up that entire page. Yeah. And Windsor McKay was really really keen on expanding what he could do in that space. Yeah. So it wasn't just a series of square panels like that. It takes place in Slumberland. Little Nemo is the main character. He's a little boy in his pajamas. Uh-huh. And he goes to sleep. And when he wakes up, he wakes up in dream, Dreamland, Slumberland. And, yeah, he uh, has a big adventure. Mm-hmm. And at the end of every uh, comic page, mm-hmm. he like wakes up and goes, oh, that was a weird one. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, that's it. It's mm-hmm. basically little boy falls asleep. The weirdest fucking shit Windsor McKay could think of <laughs> happens. Mm-hmm. And then he goes, oh, shit, that was weird. Oh, yeah, my no. God. I need to stop eating meatballs before... For bed and yeah something like that yeah. and, and, and he's just a little kid you know? yeah. and he's always in his pajamas uh, one of the most famous images from Little Nemo is uh, Little Nemo looks down off of his bed and his bed has 30 foot tall legs and it's oh, yeah. walking down the street oh that's a cool one um, yeah, I like they that put one. that in the movie luckily. oh that's Where, cool um, Little Nemo this time is a 12 year old girl okay and she lives in a lighthouse with her father okay and her father tells her stories of when he goes to Slumberland when he falls asleep, uh, okay. he has these wonderful adventures, and he has this, this sidekick in Slumberland sure. called Flip. Flip is a character from the strips. Mm-hmm. Flip is sort of like, um, looks a little bit like a, a cartoon drunk, sort of like a frog guy yeah. in the strips. Uh, Flip is the dad's sort of like partner in crime, and he goes on adventures in Slumberland with this Flip character. Mm. Uh, dad is lost at sea. He oh, dies. yeah. He dies at the beginning of the movie. Well, that's not good. Uh what is a Disney a Disney movie? A common theme is death of fathers. And um, mm-hmm. she goes to live with her uncle, who was estranged from her father, who's played by Chris Dowd, and he uh, designs doorknobs for a living. Okay, uh, someone has to. They, yeah, and he's really into doorknobs. Uh, okay. We're already in this place where everything is really... Weird. Production designed out a little bit too hard. Yeah, that, that, the, that's going to make it weird for the contrast in the dreamland yeah, if the of, reality yeah, is already of, weird. Think of the cat in the hat. Oh, like, no. Like, it's not quite that extreme, but that's okay. sort of like the, the ethos we're dealing with. Here, well, that's not a good ethos. Everything's, like, really overdesigned. Oh, you mean the movie, not the not The, not the, the movie. The, yeah, movie, yes, the movie is yeah. The movie is abysmal, ugly. yeah. It's ugly, yeah. and it's mean, and it's just one of the worst damn movies. <laughs> it's so bad. It's really um, bad, yeah. If you've heard stories about how bad the cat in the hat movie is, it's worse. Yeah, um... I uh, I rented the Cat in the Hat once. I'm sorry. Uh, to pl- put on the digital projector at my uh. movie theater job, so I could put it on at 3 a.m. <laughs> so kick, the, kick the Rocky. So kids the Rocky out. kids would get the hell out. <laughs> Like that because they would dawdle and they'd stay for an extra hour. It's like, no, I want to go we, home. We mean the Rocky Horror Picture Show kids, by the way. They go if they go to like this raucous oh, yeah. party movie yeah. at midnight and then they don't want to go home. 
and then you have to get them out somehow. Yeah, so, you, you should have put you should have put on the Star Wars holiday special. Well, I, I, that put, on, done I put on the cat in the hat, and and yeah. it, you know these are these kids have like irony knobs turned to twenty, so of yeah. course they're just gonna like sit back and watch the cat in the hat at three a.m. They don't care. Damn it! So it didn't work. It was, a, it. It was a good idea, bad mm. execution. I'm telling you, our holiday special would have done it. <laughs> Maybe so, because that one's legitimately terrible. Like as yeah. bad as you've heard it is, it's worse. Yeah, it's one of the few things. <clears throat> there's a lot of movies out there where you hear about how bad they yeah. are, and then you finally watch it, and it's like. Yeah, it's bad, but I feel like everyone's a little hyperbolic about it, you know? And then mm-hmm. you watch the Star Wars Holiday Special, which everyone tells you is the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. And it's legitimately one of the worst pieces of media ever created. Yeah, like, it, it, it's it, just it really, really unwatchable for a Like, it's weirdly unwatchable for a lot of it. Uh, but anyway, so so there's uh, a... So, so, so she goes to live with her yeah. uncle. She's, she's destitute. And she... Um, learns in a dream that her father might still be alive in the dream world somewhere. He was lost at sea. He might okay. have, might have survived. And uh, she falls asleep. Her stuffed pig comes to life and starts walking around like a little pig. Cute. And she meets Flip, her dad's uh, uh, sidekick. Now, in, like I said, in the comic, he was a little bit more like a hobo character. In this, he's played by Jason Momoa. Uh, as this tall, sexy pirate guy with fangs and okay. claws and ram's horns. He's like the satyr character. Okay, okay. so he's Torgo. <laughs> he's a monster. Jason Momoa is Torgo. If Jason Momoa played Torgo, he'd probably look a lot like this. That's, that's and they a dress selling him in point these wild for me. That outfits. sounds good. And it, he is in search of a map that will allow him to skip from dream to dream. That's the MacGuffin of the movie. And he's not entirely trustworthy. He's using Nemo to find this map for him so he can sort of go off on his own adventures. And he, uh, she is trying to get information out of him about her father and because she knows that they used to tool around together. And as it turns out, um, every person she meets in Slumberland is actually like, it's like the Matrix. They have an alter ego in the real world. Mm. So finding out the various identities of all these various characters who are in in Slumberland is I mean going that, to be that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's an okay extrapolation. I, I buy that. And there's cops in Slumberland. Uh, so the, okay. on on their trail is no, the um, Dream Police. Do they play the song? They don't. They should have. That's why are you? Yeah, there's, there's why are you? Why are you even doing this? <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 it's a, right there. <laughs> Yeah, right uh, we, we have, we have uh, the characters named Agent Green, and she's uh-huh. on their on their trail, and she's got like a paralysis gun. So there's all these uh, bizarre chase sequences where they leap into somebody else's dream, and now they're in a science fiction world, and now they're in a ballroom where everybody's made of leaves, and they're all dancing around. Uh, this is a wonderful example. This movie, uh-huh. Slumberland, yeah, of how we have most certainly hit a wall. Uh, we've reached sort of an inflection point in film special effects mm-hmm. where we can create the most colorful, imaginative things anybody can think of. Theoretically, we can make mm. just about anything mm. and make it look like it, it's real and occupies yeah. real space. And we cram in all of these what dreams may come wild-like images in this big movie. And it feels completely insubstantial. Yeah. There is nothing to take from this movie there's all these ostensibly striking images but they don't stick in your mind they just sort of sail past you they feel like uh computer desktops or commercials uh this idea that uh and i think this has a lot to do with the way we're using the technology i think because so much of these movies are filmed on green screens Mm -hmm. 
the main character is being surrounded by these fake atmospheres, but we're never in them. They yeah. feel like these, like they're in these sort of circular rooms that where the images are being projected on them, mm-hmm. but the characters are not interacting with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of what I was talking about with my father's dragon, uh, there's no sense of awe or wonderment. She's in this uh, wonderful world. Her bed is like growing legs and walking down streets. And there's no sense of exhilaration. Mm. There's no sense that something, there's no pause that where something has changed, where we've moved into it. Mm. And it f- feels so uh, just lifeless and soulless. I've never seen a movie with this much color and special effects and imagination feel this disposable before it has that red notice feeling to it where they're putting a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of money. This is clearly a very big expensive a production. Uh, some reports say it was like $150 million budget Jesus. and it's just, you know, kind of plopped down on in front of you. It's, it's, just I mean, like it's barely, I barely even realized this movie with I like last week I happened to run yeah, across no. something online saying, Oh, they did a new little Nemo. What mm-hmm. did you ever see the animated movie? Oh, from, it's like 90 Two. or 92. No, yeah. I, I missed that one. Uh, it's a weird film. It is a Japanese and American co-production. A lot of interesting people worked on it. Mm. Like Mobius worked on it. Chuck Jones did some work on it. Ray Bradbury, Brad Bird, the Sherman Brothers did the music. Yeah, I've, I've seen some like, like sequences. Yeah, the animations. Hay- really Hayao Miyazaki worked on this for a while. And oh my goodness. It's an adaptation of Little Nemo. And it's the, the story is, it barely works. But there's a sense of awe and wonder to it. The sequence in Little Nemo, I think it's towards the beginning. It's been a while since I've seen it. It's like 10 years since I've seen it last. There's a there's a sequence in the movie where Little Nemo, and he's got this like big wooden bed mm-hmm. with like a big wooden backboard and a small wooden like footboard. And he's flying it over the ocean, oh. his whole bed. If there's one thing you know about Hayao Miyazaki, he knows how to do flight. <laughs> That's true. And it's very clear that if Hayao I don't know if how much, because a lot of these people kind of came and went on the project. It's very clear Hayao Miyazaki either worked on that sequence or inspired that sequence because that sequence is wonder. Yeah. Actual yeah. wonderment. There's actual wonderment in that mm. very shaggy movie that they mm. made out of it. And so I would I would tell anyone, if you're interested in animation, you should see that movie. The plot, yeah. The animation's really great. Mm-hmm. And there is a sense of awe and wonder. This is one of the reasons why I think... I mean, Studio Ghibli was always wonderful. But I think when... it's Studio Ghibli films started to come to America en masse. Mm-hmm. Like after Princess Mononoke came out in the late 90s. Yeah. We, like, My Neighbor Totoro came out, but it Princess was Mononoke very bad. Princess Mononoke cracked it open. That had well, a wider release. Well, than, no, uh, Jesus, I, my, my glasses keep falling Oh my gosh. Uh, one of my glass lenses uh, keeps falling right out. out. Right. I know, it's really annoying. It, it, it's Every time I go see a movie, like, I'll, like all of a sudden something will happen in the film. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, shit. And I have to find my lens. Anyway, it, uh, new glasses are on the way, but right now I'll stick with these. Um, what was I saying? Uh, I was uh, talking Studio about... Studio Ghibli flight imagination. Oh, yeah, so like Studio right. Ghibli, like, we'd had a... a my Neighbor Totoro came out in America, but the original version of that in America was a terrible dub. Just mm. shrill. <laughs> like, it was just like, this movie's too quiet. We need to have all the characters scream everything. Like, it was a terrible, terrible dub. But then Princess Mononoke came out. Neil Gaiman did the the screenplay adaptation to make sure, like, the story was being told well and uh, great, uh, great cast and everything like that. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, 
this is the sense of wonderment we've wanted from fantasy movies and we have not been getting. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I think the whole generation, like when you embraced stuff like Spirited Away and Howl and all of these wonderful films, because we, the American movies mostly had lost that. Mm-hmm. And we were taking a lot of the fantastic for granted, which can be good as a joke, but it doesn't do the fantastic any favors. No, no. And, uh, I, and it's it's so so bad in Slumberland. It's just this, this idea where we're going to have all of these ostensible, like I said, all these ostensibly imaginative images. There is a scene where the bed flies over the ocean in Slumberland. Okay, and uh, and it sort of sinks into the water and sort of zips along like it's a ship. And there, you know, the music is playing. It's all very you know, kind of John Williamsy kind of a score. And you're not really feeling anything. Yeah. There's nothing exciting about this. They that's, they. That's a pity. That is. There's this assumption that if if you put the image on screen, it's going to be exciting merely because you did it, not because you presented it interestingly. Yeah. Uh, I feel that way about a lot of modern superhero movies, too, where just things are kind of given to you and we're expected to assume they're wild and fun and crazy when you're not really filming them very well. Yeah. You're not you know, making these things feel like they're substantial in any kind of way. This There's is... a, a sequence... Mm-hmm. At the beginning of um, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, mm. uh, shabby movie. Not 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 one of my favorites, but um, mm. a lot of interesting visuals in that movie, right? Yeah, a lot of, a lot lot of cool of stuff. Interesting in that movie, yeah. weird colors in that movie. Very cool stuff in that uh, movie. There's yeah. a movie uh, a sequence at the beginning of that movie where uh, this team of you know ragtag misfits have weapons and they're gonna fight a space octopus that falls yeah. out of a space hole and lands on this big platform and it's literally vomiting rainbows at them and it's you know really colorful and you know it's it, you know this musical sequence in there we, we see it in the background while there's a character dancing in the foreground kind of yeah. interesting right oh yeah, yeah i like that scene uh why isn't that more fun like why, yeah. I, why wasn't i having fun with that sequence why why shouldn't i feel something more than just I'm getting a well, credit sequence when there's this be, like rainbow vomiting octopus behind. To, me. to be fair, I think by the sequel to Guardians of the Galaxy, which the first one was the one that sort of cracked open the what if we did a space opera, but with like uh, kind of asshole characters. Well, not just asshole characters that had been done before. I, I saw Ice Pirates that had been done before. <laughs> I maintain that Ice Pirates was a definite influence on Guardians of the Galaxy, and no one has proven me wrong. Uh, but uh, that was the one where it's like we're gonna put like 70s music next no. to the, all of these fantastical space opera elements and that's going to create a new vibe. And to be fair, I think the first film did. And I think they used the music. I, think they, I you know, like it more than you. I think the yeah. first film created a, a different sort of a, a approach and aesthetic and sometimes the musical contrast is very funny and interesting. Uh, but by the second film, it's standard. It's joke not, it's not, done, it's yeah. not, I mean, it's not the, I'm not saying it's no longer a funny joke, but you're not going to get that sense of, wow, that's new. Hmm. It's not. It's no. not new anymore. It could still be good, but you're not going to get wonder out of it. Mm. So, I, I just feel like uh, we're, we're getting a lot of these movies where we're being presented with these wonderful things. Yeah. But either the characters are too cool or the filmmakers are too cool <sighs> to stop and let the wonderment settle for a moment. Like, Can we stop and just look, look at how cool this it, is? I, it's, it's, even, when, even when you get a wonder, and this is another one I know you like and I'm not a big fan of, but... Yeah. Um, there was a sequence in Hellboy 2 uh, where uh, the characters had to go to, it was like the like the marketplace of all the fantastical creatures. Yeah, like the night market. Yeah, yeah there's, and, and yeah, there's like all these fantastical creatures and they're all hawking their wares and the camera yeah. spins through that thing super fast. It's like, no, 
take your time. Oh, I actually S- think you're misremembering. I think you're misremembering that sequence. I actually rewatched mm. that not long ago, and okay. I do feel like they luxuriated a little bit. Um, I, I know you wanted twice more. Twice as long. I know you wanted yeah. more, but like I do think that they do enjoy it. Okay. I do think that they do enjoy it. But th- th- I appreciate your your overall yeah, point, and yeah. I don't disagree. Uh, to close out this this conversation, because it's going on for a while, um, it's a it's a cliche, but I'm going to quote Roger Ebert. It's not what a film about, it's how it is about oh, it. it's about it. Yeah. Like, I remember uh, there was this thing online a few years ago when uh, Dave Filoni, who's like one of the people in charge of like the Star Wars TV shows right now, uh, he was doing an interview for The Mandalorian or something, and they were t- he was describing the events that take place in the prequels. Mm. And he was describing the events in a way that made people go, see, that's why the prequels are brilliant, because it's about this thing and this thing that happens oh, to this I think kid. I remember and, this. Yeah, yeah, and everyone's like, wow, that's, this is why the prequels are great. And I'm re- looking at the exact same clip and I'm going, no, that's that's exactly why the sequels aren't great. Because they don't tell that story well. Dave, Dave <laughs> Filoni, in like a four-minute clip in an interview, tells the story better than George Lucas did in three films. The actual stuff that happens in those movies mm. is mostly interesting. Yeah, if, it's if, just presented very badly. The storytelling is it's is as stilted as story and weird. And like, yeah, yeah. It, it, how you do it mm. matters. It's yeah, not just what you do. You can do Hamlet badly. It's yeah. still a, still a great script, but you can still tell it badly. Exactly. Like, and I feel like you know. uh, something like Slumberland is taking a lot of things for granted. It's taking our sense of awe for granted. It's taking special effects for granted. Yeah. We can do, put anything we want. And we're not bothering to t- to present it to us in any kind of interesting way. Mm. Special something needs to happen yeah. with special effects. Something needs to happen where we can actually feel like we're there in a tactile way, mm-hmm. rather than just having a bunch of glittering images speed past us. Yeah. I've seen a lot of movies with a lot of really interesting, complex, intricate design that a lot of craftspeople put a lot of hard work into. And it has no impact. and and it has no um, Thor: Love and Thunder. They go to Olympus. There's hundreds of gods around that. Should leave more of an impact. I, I'm reminded uh, there, of uh, uh, there, there's a, there's a Doctor Katz oh. was an animated series in the '90s uh, about a uh, therapist and all of his clients are famous comedians, and that mm. was they would do their bits and they frame it as a therapy session. Funny show, but there was I think there was an episode I think it was in Doctor Katz where someone was talking about they went to see this latest 100 million dollar blockbuster. Mm. It's like wow, 100 million dollars. That's how much money it takes to bore me. <laughs> How do you how do you do yeah, that? Yeah, it's so yeah, yeah. That's what they did with Silverland. They got a hundred and fifty million dollars. They yeah. uh, people toiled endlessly to make this yeah. a dull and substantial movie. We need it's to stamp- start looking at special effects differently because we need them to, to be serve special. a function. What do you think to be special? That's the whole point. They're supposed to bring mm. to life something that couldn't exist. They're not just there to, to distract yeah. us. And, and if too some, much too much of what's going on, special effects bring to life something that couldn't exist. And if they couldn't exist, and all of a sudden we see them and they're real, and we're unimpressed, mm. and the characters are unimpressed, then what's the point? Yeah. Like though, like if this was a real thing in real life, your jaw would be slack with wonder. This is why Jurassic Park still works. Mm. The original Jurassic Park, it's just a monster movie. Plotwise, <laughs> it's not. It's, it's not even that interesting, really. It's just it's just Doctor Moreau, but instead of creating dog people, he made dinosaurs. It's fine, but mm-hmm. it's not it's not exactly like it's hardly Shakespeare. But like the reason why it works is Steven Spielberg makes you look up at the Brachiosaurus, yeah, yeah. and he knows that the John Williams music is going to do a lot of the work here. Mm. That's why, because you're impressed by it. it, it it's we need an- to move on. And seeing how well Jurassic Park were. Yeah, watch Slumberland and then watch Jurassic Park. Yeah. Which one handles awe? Yeah, they're 30 years apart and somehow it looks better and has so much more wonderment. 
right, let's move on. Uh, I will talk about another uh, uh, fantasy film. Uh, this is a, a, a sequel, mm-hmm. if you will. And you will because it's a sequel. Uh, it's uh, it's Disenchanted. It's the sequel mm-hmm. to the 2007 uh, live action musical uh, Enchanted, uh, which starred Amy Adams as a cartoon princess who finds her way into the real world and ends up falling in love with a single dad played by Patrick Dempsey, mm-hmm. uh, while her animated boyfriend comes into the real world to try to find her, and the evil queen played by Susan Sarandon. Uh, does it like ends up breaking in yeah just just animated characters break into the real it's, world and wreak havoc one of uh and it was made by disney it was made by uh, disney. They, and it, it was sort of a send-up of snow white but they yeah. oh, it's kind of in, a combination, in construct, yeah. combination of snow white and cinderella sort of a lot of the the hmm. the princess tropes that the studio helped popularize what if these fairy tale princesses that have become hmm. kind of a cliche wound up in the real world but rather than do i think the obvious thing which is where all oh, the real world sucks. Yeah. What if they made the real world great? What if their Her, what if their uh, their optimism and what if their magic actually just was inspiring? Yeah. And it's a cute film. Uh, it, I I feel like it could be a lot sharper, but uh, yeah, sure. There's a few wonderful. Uh, Amy Adams is great in that. So movie. So good in that movie. Uh, Timothy Spall is great in that movie. Yeah, he's a fun villain um, sidekick. Yeah. And uh, and there's a. a I think it was Mark Shaman did the songs for it. Um, uh, I'd have to I could look be that up. About that, yeah. uh, but there's a really wonderful sequence where Alan Menken. Oh, Alan Menken does it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's a wonderful sequence in the middle where uh, she mm. does the sort of Snow White. Let's get together with the woodland critters and clean up a house. Oh, yeah, but it's, it's it's modern day New York and it's Patrick Dempsey's apartment and the only animals around are like rats and cockroaches. Yeah. And it's so, disgusting. And like they're cute. <laughs> they really are cleaning everything. But he comes in, it's like, what in God's name? It's like a one legged pigeon eats <laughs> a cockroach. It's, it's like really, it's really sick. It's it's that's a good sequence. There's I, I like that movie a lot. I mm-hmm. think that movie is very, very sweet. It's it's a little self aggrandizing because it's Disney sort of saying, Isn't Disney nice? But you know what? Sometimes Disney is nice, and I think Enchanted is actually as good an ode to that as as has ever been made. Um, It's kind of bizarre that it was as good as it was, and I think a lot of it was just the alchemy. You got Amy Adams at exactly the right time. Mm -hmm. You got Alan Menken doing the songs. You got, uh, it's just a nice, colorful, sweet movie. Um, It ended happily. Uh, Amy Adams ends up with um, what the dude's name? Patrick just Dempsey. Patrick Dempsey. I don't know how he, <laughs> it's getting late. Uh, she ends up with Patrick Dempsey, and he's a single dad, so she's got a daughter now. And meanwhile, Patrick Dempsey's ex-girlfriend, played by the great Adina Menzel, uh, decides that she's more into the animated prince, so she fucks off to the to the animated Wonderland, where she becomes queen. Everyone's happy except for Susan Sarandon, but she's the villain. Great, nice and lending. Mm-hmm. But what if there was more? And here we are with Disenchanted. Fifteen years later, it takes place like one year later. Okay. Everyone looks a little older than they should be, but it's fine. Um, (laughs) Patrick Dempsey and Amy Adams don't age, so we're fine. I guess it's a little bit older than that because the daughter has gone from like being like 10 to being like in in high school. So I guess I'm like five years, but still we're fudging it and it's not a big deal. Uh, It turns out that in the real world, happily ever after isn't the end because you still have to like be married and stuff. Okay, which is so which is just true. <laughs> That's just life. Okay, you know? So it's so it's like a marriage drama. So like a, like a realist Mike Lee marriage. drama. It is a realist Mike Lee marriage. Drama. You're a hundred percent correct. Yes, it's exactly. Timothy Spall comes back. Of course, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Perfect. Mike Lee's directing. Makes, of course, he'll be back. He's back. Lindsley Manville for some reason. Like no, <laughs> it's Mulder, not. Oldest Dauntons in there. I, I wish. No, it just turns out that um, 
they ended up having their own daughter, a little baby, and it's just hard. Mm. They're exhausted all the time. Their apartment in New York, which is gigantic. It's like bigger than the house I grew up in. Let me guess. Well, he's he's a publisher. No, he's he's a lawyer. Oh, he's a, okay. He's a lawyer, and he's a, like a big, expensive lawyer too. So there is actually <laughs> right. there's actually a rationale for that. They be, they did cover that. He one. doesn't work at a magazine. No, no. Right. To be fair, he was a lawyer, and he was a big. He was a divorce lawyer. He made tons of money. They, okay. they established that before. That Fair. was the whole thing. All right. They covered their butts on that. I one. forgot. The first part. movie is good. I will say that right now. Um, so they decide to move, and um, like Mr. Blandings builds his dream house. They're going to move to the country, and they move to a big fixer upper. Mm-hmm. And it turns out it's hard. He's mm-hmm. got to commute to New York, and that sucks. Uh, the daughter has been uprooted from everyone that she knows to go to a small town. She's not into it. Uh, Amy Adams is all super into this because this is like moving back into the country. It makes her feel a little bit more like she's in her hometown. Right. And so she's, she's having, very... Having a bit of an existential crisis, though, being a real person now. A little... I wish there was more of it, but a little bit. Yeah. Because to her, this is like, oh, good. Now this is... We get our fairy tale, and it's got to be more fairy tale like. And it's actually like, no, reality keeps creeping in, and life is just really fucking difficult. And no one's really awful. Like, there's a she has like a dust up with her daughter, who's who's like, who's like, does the whole thing where it's like, you're not my mom, you're my stepmom, and that kind of hurts her feelings. But she she doesn't get like diagnosed with some horrible disease. No, it's not that. No, no, it's. See, that's the movie I want to see. I know it's the movie you want to see. It's not the movie we got. Well, we, have to, we have to review the movie we got. Michael Hedicke's Disenchanted. I, I would have killed to have seen that. <laughs> Lars von Trier's Oh, God. Um, it turns out Patrick Dempsey's like super abusive, but she just forgives yeah. him every time. That's a Lars von Trier. Anyway, movie. they move and they get uh, house guests. Uh, uh, James Marsden and Adina Menzel show up to wish them, you know, oh, we heard you moved. We thought we'd come in from the animated universe and say hi, and as they a, just as, pop and, back and forth, and just, they, they do. There's like a they have like a magic wishing well in the backyard that they can pop in and out of. Okay. Um, and they say we decided we give you a little gift. Uh, this is a magic wand from your home country of Andalasia, and if you're from Andalasia, you can you can use it to make a wish. Okay. And that's that that'll be nice. Uh, and uh, Giselle, Amy Adams' character, after a particularly rough day where. Uh, nothing is going right. She wants her family to live this fairy tale life, and mm-hmm. everyone's miserable. She decides to make to wish that her new hometown was more like a fairy tale. Okay, uh, and that's a big fucking problem because yeah, a, and the monkey's paw finger curl. Pretty right? much, yeah. So at first, it seems like everything's great. Like the toaster is singing to her as it makes her the toast, oh, God. and that sequence is kind of fun. Um, but it turns out there are major downsides as well, uh, because in fairy tales, stepmothers are always villains. Oh, that's interesting. So okay, she so accidentally she... wished herself to becoming a villain, and oh, did, she has... does she like start turning into a super? She villain, does. Or... Okay. Like every hour on the hour, she starts getting more villainous. Oh, that's really. And cute. she's trying to stop it. And <laughs> initially, you know what? That's clever. Hmm. I'm actually going to tell you that's a clever idea, and it's it's a little. Uh, uh, it's a little mean to step parents. I always thought, but like whatever, it's fine. So. Yeah, she's realizing that she is, oh, this wish is wonderful, everything's great, and then she realizes, like, oh no, wait a minute, I'm becoming weirdly vain, and my pet squirrel has become an evil cat, and, <laughs> like, all of this stuff is super clever, I'm gonna, this basic premise is super clever, uh, and so she's, but, and then the problem is that there's this, like, lady who's, like, this, um, you know, super in charge of everything, the PTA and all like the local festivals and stuff like that. And she's reframed as the evil queen. She's played by Maya Rudolph because of course she is. Um, so uh, she could have been Leslie Mann. Could have been Leslie. <laughs> Mann. 
True. <laughs> uh, uh, but but uh, no one else. One it's pretty much two. those two, right? Um, but uh, she finds out that Giselle has a wishing wand. She steals the wishing wand. And now Giselle can't un- unmake the wish. And so, like, as the clock is ticking, she, like, tells her daughter, like, I've made a horrible mistake. Everything's going bad. I'm about to turn evil. And she does! And then she, like, throws her teenage daughter back into the into the fantasy realm. And now she's going to turn super evil and, and just, like, take over the whole town. All right. Great idea! Honestly, that's pretty clever. Mm-mm. Nothing to back it up. Like, not the only part, the only thing that really backs this up is Amy Adams knows what she's doing. Yeah, she knows how to flip the switch from cartoonishly naive to deliciously vain and like evil stepmom stuff. Like she, she can when she does that, it's funny. It's like Gollum in Two Towers. Like he just switches and she does it like in front of her daughter, and she's like, "What the hell is wrong with you?" All of that stuff is good. Um. The jokes aren't very funny, uh, um, and what's and what's frustrating about this is uh, it looks cheap to a to a serious detriment. The well, original this, this is a straight to video release. It, right? it, well, straight to Disney Plus, which hmm. ostensibly isn't supposed to be like, but it sucks. Yeah, like it's supposed to. You know, it used to be like they would do like. There's a straight to video or straight to TV, a TV sequel of a big movie, like it, one and a half kind of stuff. Well, I apparently hear that one's actually pretty good, but like generally speaking, it was used to be understood that it'd be a step down in quality. Yeah, you know, like we didn't have the money, we didn't have the cast, we didn't have the time to develop story. It's just basically wouldn't it be neat if we tried? This is a sequel to a blockbuster Oscar nominated film, and. All the stuff were like Andalusia. First off, the animated sequences look like they were done by a Disney knockoff house. Ooh. Like, it's the, like the frame rate's low. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if maybe that's part of the joke because one of the ideas is when they go back to Andalasia, she's sucked all the magic out of Andalasia and brought into the real world. Uh-huh. So maybe that's the joke that yeah, Andalasia is yeah. badly animated now. It doesn't read. I feel like yeah, you need to comment a... on that in order for, to get away with that because we don't see enough of the animated universe, mm-hmm. so we we spend most of our time with it not looking good. It just looks like it doesn't look good. There's um, a, a, an animated series out there called Gumball. Yeah, and uh, you can yeah. find this really fun sequence from Gumball where uh, they're running out of money in the show, mm-hmm. and that's reflected by the quality of animation actually going down. Yeah, and they have to make it out across town as their budget is running out. Yeah. So, like the first, the color drains, and then like the CGI goes, and eventually they're just doing like storyboards, yeah. mm-hmm. and like uh, and, and then great. then eventually it's just like crayon drawings on napkins, like they're just barely making it over the the. The finish line Gumball before they can get their, very uh, weird show. their budget back. That's a great sequence, though. That's a brilliant look sequence. Look up that sequence, anyway. Yeah, that, really that's great. fantastic. Um, yeah, it's not clever enough, to, I think, to, to play mm-hmm. that. I, I wish they'd said it. Yeah. I think that would have been cleverer, like, to just sort of make a point of it. Because I think, at best, it's going to be too subtle for some people to notice. And at worst, it just looks bad. Yeah. So well, I don't think... call I don't attention think... to the... They did that in, Chi- the in, uh, in Chippendale. Yeah. It's like, we're going to go to the Uncanny Valley, and then they explain what that means. Like, yeah. just call it the Uncanny Valley. Like, the, the the fantasy version of the small town, it, it looks like a Ren Fairs in town. It doesn't mm. look that great. And it just, it really undermines it, because the whole point is we're supposed to do something really fantastical, and then this is the one you didn't throw money at? <laughs> this, the sequel to this movie everyone really, really likes? Throw some money at it. Make it look nice. Like, it really hurts the film. Like, it or feels even if, even cheap and, and, and slapdash. Even if it's a cheap joke, call attention to that. So, call you know, the, the, well, this this feels like, you know, a, a really cheap follow-up to something. Yuck, yuck. Wink that would be fine. Kind of, There's always a bit of self-awareness to it. It was about the animation coming into the real world and that contrast. Lean into it. But they don't. Mm. 
Um, frankly, it's a snooze. The most of the jokes don't land. The idea of the jokes is funnier than the jokes. I told you the idea of the jokes, and you laughed. Mm. Yeah. Mostly, they're not funny. No, that's too bad. It's a really solid premise for a sequel. Not like amazing, but solid. You could totally make a movie out of it and make it work. And it just falls really flat. And honestly, like there comes a point, and like it's halfway through, and it's longer than it needs to be too. Uh, it, halfway through the movie, where I'm just sort of like. I could be in bed now. <laughs> and that would be fine. Uh, like, I would be fine okay. with that. If, if a movie yeah. makes you want to be asleep rather than watching it, it's doing yeah. something grievously wrong. It's doing something wrong. And it's a shame because there's so much talent here. Yeah. Everyone's funny. Like Jason Marsden's, uh, sorry, James Marsden's really, really funny. Amy Adams is really funny. God James, knows Maya Rudolph is funny. James Marsden's really talented. He's brilliant. He's, he knows exactly how to do this character. Mm. Every time he's on screen, which is not nearly enough. He's only got like three scenes. He's mm. really fucking funny. Remember when he had to act opposite a CGI animal in two different movies? I know, that was weird. He was in Hop and he was in Sonic the Hedgehog and they're practically the same movie. And Sonic the Hedgehog too, but yes. I didn't see Sonic the Hedgehog too. I didn't see, I didn't see it either. But yeah. He's great. He's he's, he's, he's just one of those... He's able to like pull a character out of like those crap movies he, he's in. He's one of the most <laughs> underrated actors of his generation. I genuinely mean that. I think uh, he's... And, and, and I mean this just sort of observationally. It yeah. just might be the way he looks. He's he, too handsome for his own He guy. has those sort yeah. of like, yeah, matinee idol, handsome, good looks. He's supposed to be playing like these sort of heroes. And yeah. he comes in for like a more interesting character role and they're not going to cast him in that role, even though yeah. he's perfectly capable I, of doing I, I, that. I, he needs Nicholas Holt's agent. Yeah. Nicholas Holt's know. agent would do wonders with He could have played some yeah. sort of sniveling guy who gets yeah. killed in the menu. Yeah. yeah he's a, great. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, Disenchanted. Big old whiff. Mm, it's not even like Hocus Pocus 2 which is obviously a lot cheaper and more thrown together than Hocus Pocus but it comes together through force of personality Mm. here most people are just kind of walking through it it's just not great it's a bummer of a film anyway uh, tell me about I don't know something else (laughs) tell me about She Said Uh, okay She Said Um, this is a movie from uh, Maria Schrader Uh, she directed um the Dan Stevens is a robot drama. I'm your man from a couple of years ago. I missed that. That's a pretty good movie. I should have yeah. seen that because Dan Stevens is a robot in it. Dan Stevens is a sex bot. And uh, oh, like he's sold. Programmed, literally. Programmed I literally to be, buy that sex bot. Uh, uh, like the main character's like <laughs> ultimate mate, but she's so suspicious of true love that she doesn't buy that he's like devoted no. to her, even though he's literally a robot. Nice. Uh, and and uh, Dan Stevens uh, speaks German fluently. So he's, oh. yeah, it's in German. Didn't know that. Okay. Uh, this one is a procedural investigative journalism movie, uh, very much in the vein of Spotlight, about Harvey Weinstein. Mm. It's about the real-life uh, journalists from the New York Times mm. who were uh, looking into uh, Harvey Weinstein's sexual malfeasance that had been going on f- uh, unchecked for many, many years. Yeah. And as as they investigate, they find this whole web of protection around uh Harvey Weinstein, how he would always bully people. He would always deny things. And he would also have like lawyers and contracts constructed in such a way that it would make the people who was victimizing very yeah. deliberately victimizing, not come forward. He would make calls yeah. and get people. Uh, he was abusing know, his power. Yeah. He was abusing his power. Uh, rather famously, he would uh, deny people jobs. Yeah. Uh, like he would, he would call up other studios and say, Hey, um, this, th- this person, to work with. this person is difficult to work with. You don't want to hire them. Uh, this is why we didn't see Mira Servino for a long time. Yeah. She won an uh, Oscar did like two big movies and then just vanished. Yeah. It was, that was yeah. all, that was all Harvey yeah. Weinstein. Yeah. All, all of his horrible I've stuff. I've heard the stories. Um, yeah. Ashley Judd was another one who was denied jobs. That's ridiculous. Ashley Judd's in this movie playing herself. Oh, good for her. Yeah. Okay. So she comes back right. and, and 
talks about her. Yeah, Ashley Judd was one of the biggest actors in the world for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's literally criminal. Yeah, what uh, he did, like it's wildly horrific. No, he criminal. he uh, he's been uh, brought to court for like eighty six separate charges. He's in court right sexual now. Sexual assault, and like, yeah, they're just, they're just in the news. Like he's he was, still fighting. He's still he was indicted like, in yeah. New York, and he's still uh, yet to be indicted in Los Angeles and in London. So he's got more coming. I, I think they started um, doing the trial proceedings in Los Angeles. Remember, maybe just that, recently. Yeah, yeah I heard but, I heard um, some stuff in the court. But yeah, yeah in, no, in this movie. Jesus uh, Christ. Carrie Mulligan plays Megan Toohey, uh, the actual journalist, mm-hmm. and uh, Zoe Kazan plays Jody Cantor, the other journalist. They, they teamed up and kind of worked on this story together. They were sort of the the two central forces. But, yeah. of course, they're surrounded by uh, managers and editors and other people who yeah, are it's a whole giving them advice. Yeah. So, yeah, it's about this entire uh, team at the New York Times. Uh, and it's very straightforward. It's like law and order. And this is this is more descriptive than critical. It feels like a TV movie that we're getting okay. a lot of the more lascivious details. Uh, luckily, there aren't any reenactment scenes. There's not like oh, actual God, scenes be, of abuse. That would be completely yeah. tasteless. Well, uh, so they, they but there are some pretty explicit descriptions as to what happened. Right. And there's actual uh, audio recordings of Harvey Weinstein. Oh, wow. Uh, that were like served as evidence like of so things that's he like said to it's public record it. now wow. and they used it in the movie and there's okay. and they actually went to the hotel rooms where some of this took place so there's it feels like almost like documentary uh, reenactments where mm-hmm. they're playing the actual audio and showing us the actual physical places um it's it's not so tightly focused as a movie uh now this is an interesting story if you've been paying attention, you probably know a lot of these details already. Right. A lot of what uh, Harvey Weinstein said and did is now a matter of public record. You can yeah. look up the stories. You probably read it in the New York Times. Uh, so going through all of these details again is essentially a, a chance to give a lot of his victims a voice. So right. some of his victims are you know, played by actresses. They're caught up with in the modern time and they get to tell the story. Okay. Um, when, it, when it's actually judged, she gets to tell it herself um, because she, she's playing herself. Uh, That's yeah, choice. And so, yeah, they, they get to... Uh, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is a character in this movie, but they didn't get Gwyneth Paltrow to play Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, She's, like, on the, on the phone and, like, shots of, like, Gwyneth from behind. Who do they get to play um, Gwyneth Paltrow? I, I'd have to look that up. Oh, um, we don't, uh, see, oh, we don't oh, ever I'm, see... I'm just curious. It's yeah, we don't ever see her face. We also have... Um, we also have some uh, Harvey Weinstein's in the movie as well, oh. but it's another one of those things where we only ever see him from behind or from, like, yeah. a distance or, like, over the phone. Okay. Um... In fact, the movie starts with uh, Megan Toohey's other bombshell reporting from several years prior, which was uh, the breaking of the Donald Trump sexual abuse scandals. Oh, yeah. And all these women were coming forward and accusing him, and he was still elected president. Yeah. In wake of all... Of it was like a exposed. month after. I mean, some of yeah. it was people knew, but like there was new allegations and like mm. this horrible audio recording where he basically confessed to sexual assault. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, was, and a month later, he was elected president. Yeah, and and so uh, one of the big uh, points of drama is Megan Toohey, the Carrie Mulligan character, doesn't want to take up the Harvey Weinstein scandal because she feels it's not going to do anything. Yeah, she's kind of defeated, and yeah. also uh, we get to see her personal life. She's pregnant. She's just having a child. She's tired because she's, she's living with an on, infant. Yeah. Uh, she's really depressed a lot of the time, so it's really difficult for her to dive into this story where she's just going to uncover a lot of pain and scandal. Uh, but Zoe Kazan is really conf- uh, sort of convincing, and they go about their investigation. They don't have a lot of 
character, sort of in terms of movie characters. There's not a lot of human moments for these characters. Okay. It's so straightforward in terms of like the procedural that we don't get a lot of the reporter's actual human face. They're little more than their jobs. Well, you could say that about, for example, Woodward and Bernstein and All the President's yeah. Men. And, uh, I, and I think that's sort of the vibe that the director might be going for, sure. this All the President's Men thing. Well, but, I think that's a template because yeah. that people forget like All the mm-hmm. President's Men, which is about uh, the reporters who broke up in the Watergate scandal. Mm-hmm. That was only made a couple of years after the Watergate scandal. That was yeah, like really yeah. fresh. And it, much like this movie, I know some people was like, oh, I didn't see a movie about it. It was just in the news. Mm. That was true for all the President's Men as well. Mm. It's one of the biggest news stories in like the history of America. Yeah. People knew it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's something to be said for uh, telling sort of a, a Hollywood version of this kind of a story where it's a little bit more neatly packaged than you know, months of actual reporting. Yeah, it's a, that can um, be, a, that's a clutter. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, important, I, I but am, it's, it's, you know, it's, mo- it's not yeah. framed, you know? A, a movie I liked that nobody else seemed to was Oliver Stone's Snowden, uh, which... Uh, oh, you like that movie? I liked Snowden. I, okay. I think, yeah, I think it just sort of like encapsulated everything really well. I think he sort of peppered in with a lot of interesting... Like, Nicolas Cage shows up in one scene. Oh, Nicolas Cage I, is good. I feel like uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I don't know why he did that voice. That was a weird choice that kind of mm. set everybody out of the movie, but... Yeah. Um, I, for me, his voice was not the problem. I think mm. it was just overly... It was repeating a lot of what was known. Well, it's not just repeating what was known. I can handle that. For me, it just felt like it was so tidily packaged. It kind of did the complexity of the thing a disservice. Okay. Oliver Stone, usually when he does based on true stories, or even when he doesn't, Mm. he has a point of view. Yeah. yeah. And And that one, I felt like his point of view was not very interesting. Government, am I right? Yeah, kind of. Like, it just was basically... um, Yeah, he didn't... I don't feel like Yeah. He liked it more than I did. Bit, bit of a tangent. I feel like uh, Oliver Stone, as a filmmaker and as a person, kind of matured. He became a lot less angry, so he's still so interested that. in sa- telling the same things. But he he couldn't tell a story as caustic as he did, like with Wall Street back in the eighties. Uh, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe not. Yeah. So even when he's making a film about George W. Bush, a person he clearly hates, yeah, uh, he's staging it more in the terms of what a maroon rather than I hate this guy. I think it's, I think it's more about how pathetic he is. Yeah. yeah. Like I can't even hate him. He's just so unbelievably pathetic. Yeah. He's just kind of, kind of a dumb guy. Uh, the, the last shot of W the, the George W. Bush movie oh, yeah. is, um, uh, George W. Bush always wanted to uh, own a baseball team, which he did yeah. briefly. And, yeah. uh, and there's this recurring sequence where he's like out in uh, in the outfield and sort of yeah. like his presidential jacket with yeah. a baseball glove on. He's going to catch a ball. Yeah. And the last shot is uh, here. The crack of the bat, the ball goes up and it's light and it falls in front of the light and he loses sight of the ball. Yeah. And that's the last shot. It's like mm. he doesn't even get his fantasy. He loses sight well, of the ball. He loses sight of everything, doesn't he? Yeah. Like, yeah and that, that's, that, yeah. that's the, the punchline for that. So it's not a subtle metaphor. Uh, I, I feel like the... She said is very, very grounded, very down to earth. Um, and it's, of course, is going to spark your outrage yeah. d- gland. And I feel I, like I would out- hope so. outrage is, uh, I mean, if anybody who's spent an afternoon doom scrolling on Twitter knows, yeah. uh, it, it's a drug. That outrage, that sort of, yeah. you kind of like look for a little bit of hate high. And uh, I feel like that's a little bit of what she said is going for. It's like so. we're kind of going through these details again just so we can be outraged again. Well, there are certain uh, things that are genuinely outrageous. Yeah. And I think yeah. God knows that's a good example of it. I think a, a, one of the big issues with films like she's not what she said in particular, but um, when we're sort of going after Harvey Weinstein in mm. particular, yeah. is uh, there's not enough of this in She Said where it actually is going to implicate a, a system at large. Mm. That that creates and protects people like Harvey Weinstein. Right. 
uh, Harvey Weinstein isn't necessarily like a supervillain, and now he's taken down and everything's at an end. He no, he's he's a supervillain. I mean, but yeah, I, I mean, he was taken down. But I, there's, he was taken down, and that was you know now we get to sort of expose all of his crimes. Yeah. Let, let's hope we get every detail of his crimes well, and get, yeah. gets to be punished for all of them. Uh, but I wish there were like a little bit more attention paid in this movie to sort of a macro element mm-hmm. where we're criticizing the system at large. Yeah. And that's a big part of this movie where there's like NDAs and stuff. And, uh, the big drama here is not whether or not we're going to get Harvey Weinstein, but whether we're going to get his victims on record mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and how the, the system has worked so hard to keep them down that they're all afraid to even decades after the fact, right. they don't want to speak out because they signed a contract or he threatened them. Yeah. Uh, so NBA that's, a, that's the a tool of the devil. That's a big part like, of literally. what's going Yeah. Yeah. It's a big part of what's going on here, but, uh, I feel like there, there's a, a way to make this movie where that's litigated a little bit more strongly. Yeah. Uh, good movie. Okay. Yeah. A little, little dry, but you know, good. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds interesting. God. Um, all right. Uh, why don't you tell, okay, we got three movies left. Uh, why don't you tell me about the inspection while we're on the heavy stuff? All right. Um, the inspection is a true story. Uh, this is the story of, uh, the, the actual filmmaker. I'll live through this. His name is Elegance Bratton. And, uh, he was uh, living on the street, uh, gay man, kind of rejected by his mother. And the only place he could really find any kind of solace was with the military. He decided to join the Marines. And uh, in real life, Elegance Bratton came out on the other side, uh, having developed a sort of camaraderie for other people. He understood that if he's part of this organization that is actually sort of forcing him to focus and protect the people around him, that he'll be accepted. And he was. He feels like going into the military saved his life. Okay. Uh, so this is a sort of a fictionalized version of that, where, um, let me look up the actor's name, uh, Jeremy Pope okay. plays, a, plays the main character, and he, uh, he plays the elegant uh, Bratton character, and uh, he uh, is rejected by his mother, his mother's played by Gary Barrel Union, and he goes into the military, and he has to hide his sexuality. This is in the early 2000s, so this is like okay. War on Terror era. Was it, was it still done, Ask, Don't Tell back then? I'm trying to remember uh, when that was repealed. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was uh, Clinton era. I, yeah, I'm trying to remember so when, they, I, when I th- they undid that. I think it was still... Because there's a, actually a line of dialogue mm. uh, to the effect where somebody says that very homophobically. It's like, that, that is a gay man. We can't have him there. And uh, and uh, the drill instructor is played by Bokeem Woodbine. Okay. Uh, says, well, uh, that's not his job to tell me and I'm not going to ask. So yeah. uh, something along those lines. People, so, people if, you're, if you're young, maybe don't remember this. This is a big deal. Like it used to be if you were uh, queer, you could just get thrown out of military service. Yeah. And get, then in the 90s, they get, decided gay to... Gay soldiers were not allowed to serve. In the 90s, they decided to just inch towards acceptance and inclusivity yeah. with uh, this idea that um, you, you can... Be queer in the military so long as nobody knows about yeah, it. Yeah, so you can you can be closeted in the yeah. military. So as long as they didn't, so you know, the, uh, don't ask them. If, if, don't ask someone about their sexual like identity, and then they don't have to tell you about their sexual identity, and then it's cool, right? And it's like no, that's not really that's not how that works. That's just saying. Yeah, so that's just saying we we we're okay with what. So yeah, that 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 was the don't ask, yeah. don't tell military policy that yeah. you might have heard about. Uh, so yeah, this is in the early 2000s, and he, uh, what I like about this film is it does get a lot of sort of the really mundane details of just living in barracks correctly. Yeah, yeah. The Boking Woodbine character, the drill instructor, is a horrible human being. Oh dear. He is, he is a bully. 
uh, he's called out for being a bully and he just says, I, you know, picked up my friend's guts in, you know, in, in the battlefield. Yeah. Uh, and so that gives me sort of the right to treat these people horribly. Sure. And, uh, and of course, uh, the main character, Ellis is the character's name, has to hide his sexuality. He's, he's, in fact, he's asked right to his face, have you ever been a homosexual? And he has to say, no, sir. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he is a gay man. He's yeah. attracted to some of these men around him. He has, you know, uh, there's a, this really uh, damning sequence where he's taking a shower and he gets aroused in the shower. Okay. And everybody notices, and that's hell for him. That's essentially him, like uh, him being outed. Yeah. There is so much just uh, hatred for gay men in this mm-hmm. scenario, which is odd because it's also this very homosocial scenario where every, there's all these guys they're naked and they're right. shirtless and they're touching each other a lot no, never let it be said that um, bigotry wasn't also hypocrisy yeah so yeah. um and and you know, over the course of the movie he actually does get to become a better soldier and he actually is getting a lot of inspiration training to serve in the battlefield and learning to use weapons and doing all these like uh, you know, uh ropes courses and all the rest uh I feel like it does a, a great service to this man's emotional journey. He is going through something very heavy and he's learning to find acceptance uh, in this very unlikely place, this very homophobic place. What the film doesn't do is litigate the place. Uh, the, oh, the film doesn't uh, doesn't take Bokeem Woodbine to task for any of his horrible behavior. None of the other soldiers are punished for their, uh, their uh, homophobic remarks. Right. There's a, a few moments where we think that he's fallen in love and like found another gay soldier that he might have an affair with. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, they, they sort of pull that back in this really sort of not a damning speech, but kind of a bitter speech where we say, if there were no gay people in the military, there wouldn't be a military. There's a lot of gay people serving. Yeah. But we have to stay quiet. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that i don't like yeah. this this sort of don't ask don't tell message now i don't want to belittle uh the real man's experience sure. because he actually went through something very profound and it saved his life he he was he's convinced that if he had stayed homeless on the streets he would have been dead and he went to the military and it saved his life and he's alive and now he's making movies uh, he, yeah. and he ended up becoming a, a a war photographer and that's how he got interested in photography so it was actually through the military that he found his creative passion but i want this movie to take the military to task for creating this system. And this move, this isn't the movie to do that. Uh, there's a, a bigger story here that this movie isn't addressing. It's, it's, mm-hmm. and it feels uh, absent. It's not just like, yeah, they, no, they, they had another story to tell. And this is not like, yeah, they, actually, like it's they, important they thing bring they up a lot of these like, things. Yeah. And yeah, there's, there's not a moment where they actually get to sort of point out that hypocrisy, point out this weird, uh, uh ambivalence that, we, that the character might have about this thing. It's not know. ambivalent. He's just sort of very happy about it. Uh, at the very end of the movie, he finally gets to confront his mother again, and it sort of goes out on a little bit of an ambivalent note, uh, in, in a way that's, I, I think, is supposed to feel like, uh, but eventually it will be a triumph. It's not a, a sad or a bitter moment. It could have been, could have used a little bit more of that. Interesting. All right. Uh, well, tell me about cannibalism. Uh, oh, it's delicious. <laughs> it's a cannibalism movie. <clears throat> cannibalism is the funniest taboo, and it, it's he's, up there. He's, he's my friend, and he's also my, my meal. <laughs> I'm sorry. Cannibalism. Try, uh, try to find a way to make it funny. Go for it. Uh, well, I mean, no, it is. It, it, it's, there's, it's, there's, there's cannibal plenty of comedies. Out cannibalism there, has um, been made funny many times. Yeah, I'm not. It's, I'm it's just, cannibal the musical and parents. No, there's you know, some cannibal comedy. Definitely funny. Cannibalism. Yeah. Um, no, uh, Bones and All. This is the latest film from Luca Guadagnino. And um, 
This is a very interesting blend of genres. It's a cannibal horror movie, but it's also like a YA romance. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Why Uh, not? So uh, the main character is this character named uh, Marin. She's played by an actress named Taylor Russell. And at the beginning of the movie, uh, she and her father, they're living alone. Mother's long out of the picture. And uh, she's invited to a sleepover um, against her father's wishes. She has to sneak out of the house. She goes to spend the the night with uh, a couple of her girlfriends. Uh, And during the sleepover, at one point, she very casually and very deliberately uh, puts her friend's finger in her mouth and bites it off. Uh, And terror ensues she has to run off uh what what is happening it turns out she has had this strange impulse to consume raw and even living human flesh ever since she was little yeah. and uh her her father scoops him up and moves them to a new new town another state this takes place in like maybe the early 80s so okay. there's there's no internet yet no internet no cell phones so they're able to sort of vanish a lot more easily and uh she wakes up in the morning and dad's gone. She's left, uh, he's left behind a cassette for her so she can listen to it. And throughout the first parts of the movie, he kind of narrates her past. And we get to learn that when she was three, she tried to eat the babysitter and accidentally killed the babysitter when she was three years old. Uh, she's always had this weird sort of eating impulse. And now she's out on her own. Dad says, you're, I can't deal with this anymore. I don't know what this is. You're, this is just part of you. You're going to eat people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she goes out on the street, uh, Early in her journey, she runs into Mark Rylance. Okay. Uh, and uh, a lot of people don't like this character just because he's kind of this weird, kooky guy in a hat with a ponytail. And he, says, and he explains the rules of cannibalism to her. Uh, she, this cannibalist thing is it's almost like being a vampire. It comes with like this suite of superpowers. Yeah, okay. Like you can, you can smell other cannibals, for instance. Like you recognize them. Hmm. Uh, and uh, you can also smell... When someone is about to die. So uh, Mark Rylance has been sniffing around waiting for like people to just sort of die of natural causes and then he can dive in and start eating. Uh, and so he learns sort of a, she learns about from you know the world of cannibals from him. She ends up drifting out on her own for a little bit because Mark Rylance is a little bit creepy and falls in with Timothy Chalamet. And uh, he is uh, also this sort of itinerant cannibal. Uh, who has, uh, lives a little bit more on the edge. He just sort of attacks and eats people as, as the, his appetite strikes. Uh, and uh, they end up going off together and they end up falling in love. She ends up trying to uh, investigate where her mother was because evidently her mother also was a cannibal. She got the cannibal gene from her mother. Uh, and th- that's a big uh, plot point. There's, there's a lot of uh, scenes of them just sort of traveling around, tooling around in a truck. Um uh, Michael Stuhlbarg appears in this movie, completely right. against type, as sort of this uh, tobacco-chewing hillbilly guy okay. who is traveling around in a truck with David Gordon Green. <laughs> okay. And uh, he's the one who introduces the idea, oh, nothing's better than bones and all, when you just eat all of a person. And David Gordon Green is like a cannibal groupie like he's not a cannibal but he wants to be so there's this whole weird subculture of cannibals that we don't go too far into but Luca Guadagnino is really good about making us understand that it's there uh if you've seen Luca Guadagnino's movies he is really really good about capturing really tiny 
textures uh, and in, in sort of in sort of is uh, interiors inside rooms. So we get to see you know stains on walls or you know dripping faucets or rusty exteriors of gas stations, and all of that stuff is really gorgeous. Just the way he photographs these scenes uh, really draws you in and puts you in these really kind of dreamy head spaces. Uh, it, it balances the romance and the cannibal horror aspects better than you might expect. Okay. Uh, I feel like it could be a little bit more quickly paced when there's like a lot of love story aspects. You're wondering, wait, weren't they cannibals? And then when they're eating people, they're like, wait, weren't they supposed to be in love? Uh, so there's there's a little bit of that rotating through. Uh, but I, I feel like it, it's pretty canny overall about the way it balances the horror with the the love story. Uh, I'm gonna just say say a thing uh, something right now. Hmm. Um, parts of this sound like the movie Raw. Uh, Does it feel like of a piece? Or well, I mean, they're it... both cannibal movies, yeah, uh, but there's also that like sort Raw of like young is... people with the uncontrollable urge, specifically to cannibalism. I think the uh, maybe a history of family cannibalism might be in there somewhere. I mean, th- this notion of well, in order to tell cannibalism drama. Mm-hmm. You have to have somebody who is a cannibal, uh, sort of a, against their better judgment, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have just sort of somebody who like who likes the taste of flesh and tries to get it occasionally. You would think that th- those kinds of people would get it ethically. There needs to be like a vampire aspect to it, and that's something that's mm-hmm. in Raw. Okay. That's something that's in this movie as well. That there there's the sort of supernatural class of people, and they refer to them in the movie as just eaters. Okay. Uh, so this is about uh, something that doesn't exist. People who, as far as we know, uh, people who have this uncontrollable urge to devour live people, uh, and uh, so yeah. It, it, but it's not like it, it, not like raw in terms of its tone or in terms of its story or in terms of like the kinds of characters it's trying to tell stories about. Even though they're both about young women. Okay. So good then. Uh, it, it, it's good. It's not going to be to everyone's taste. Uh, <laughs> taste. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, th- I think it's it, it's an interesting blend of genres that you're not going to see too much of. The, the cannibal romance is, is in short supply. Well, speaking of cannibal romances, uh, Lindsay Lohan is... Um, that's not a good segue at all. Lindsay Lohan's back. Making movies again. Good for she, her. She never played a cannibal. I don't think. I think there might have been a subplot in Mean she, Girls. That's why she was so mean. Because she's she, she can't eat human flesh. Uh, something like she's that. She's grumpy. Anyway, Lindsay Lohan's back. And Lindsay Lohan, you know, superstar of like the late 90s and 2000s. And the, the tabloid world in which we live just ate her alive. Just ripped her apart. Well, she was being taken advantage of by some greedy yeah. parents. Yeah. She, uh, she emancipated herself when she was like 17. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, struggled with substance abuse. Yep. Uh, yeah, the tabloid industry just ripped her to shreds yeah and uh, she had trouble getting work for a long time she ended up having to def- here's what i like about Lindsay lohan's arc yeah is uh she had to flee tabloids she went to greece and just sort of hid out at all of these uh resorts she could just sort of hang out on beaches uh-huh. and she thought i like this so much i'm gonna open one of my own and she did Good for her. so you can go to there she has two resorts in greece uh just called lohan that's great you can stay at her resorts and you know what good for her so she, she's been an entrepreneur this yeah. whole time and I, she's I, back to acting I, I, I think she's actually a really great performer i even like some of the movies that she's done that like people don't like i will go to bat for i know who killed me i know <laughs> it became like this big punchline it like swept the razzie awards like that means anything uh but that's actually if you like italian horror movies you realize that a lot of the things people think that movie is bad for are actually completely intentional and brilliant it's a really good, like, American weird dreamlike Jallo, and I think she's really good in that. Um, so it's cool to see her back in a movie, and she's back in 
Uh, you know what? It's a booming industry. A Netflix Christmas rom-com. <laughs> it is called Falling for Christmas. Oh. And she's falling for Christmas. It's Christmas. I, I didn't watch this. No, you didn't. Because I didn't want to. I understand that. Uh, someone has to. And I, maybe alone in this All podcast, right. am a professional. And I will do the, I will do the heavy lifting. Um, one of my favorite subgenres of uh, Christmas rom-coms, especially the made-for-TV variety, uh, is when you just take a movie that isn't a Christmas rom-com and just shove Christmas in it. Mm. Uh, I've seen this many times. Uh, there was a Christmas Liar Liar on Hallmark. Okay. That's always good. They've seen some Christmas Groundhog Days mm. uh, before. Uh, and this one is Christmas Overboard. Oh, no. Yeah. So, uh, Overboard, you may recall, uh, was a romantic comedy in the 80s with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell, where she was a very stuck up uh, rich debutante. And he was a working class guy, and she ended up getting amnesia. And his vengeance upon her for being mean to him was to say, yes, you you lost your memory. You're my wife, and I'm now going to put you at work taking care of me and my kids. Overboard is fucked up. (laughs) They, they, uh, They remade it. They did. They gender flipped it. Mm-hmm. Still a little fucked up. It's, it's a little better. They took out a little bit of the creepy elements mm-hmm. to it. It would start um, Eugenio Derbez and... Anna Ferris. Anna Ferris. And you know what? They make it work better yeah, than you I'm... might think. Uh, it's still not a good movie. It's still a genuinely, profoundly creepy concept. Uh, and I'm going to say this right now. Falling for Christmas does it better. <laughs> Falling for Christmas manages to do this tell, tell without, be, without being creepy. Oh, here's, and here's, right. here's how. Because the previous films about a snooty rich person mm-hmm. losing their memory and ended up and ending up working for a working class guy in both of those or, or Anna Ferris in both of those other versions the working class person knows who they are and is intentionally taking advantage of them okay in this version he doesn't oh okay. so he just knows he thinks he's some amnesiac person and he's not telling her that they're, they're married hmm it's basically so she's the uh, she's basically par- playing Paris Hilton. Her father is this hotel magnate, okay, uh, who runs a, a very very swank ski lodge, and it's at the top of this big mountain, you know, Aspen whatever type area. And towards the bottom of the mountain, there's a very small ski lodge, mom and pop ski lodge that's not doing great for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's they don't go far enough to try to make her unlikable to like really make like the arc work i think they're i think Lindsay lohan's spoiled brat kind of a character a part of me wonders if maybe Lindsay lohan didn't want to be played the character too many people think Lindsay lohan is so they tried to make her like a little bit you know a little little out of touch but not Hmm. bad um so she's never had a proper job her dad wants her to work for the industry she's not into it she wants to be an influencer it's a somewhat vapid uh, uh profession according to the film uh, and sure, and her influencer boyfriend, they go out to the top of a mountain. He's going to ask her to marry him, basically just for the publicity. Uh, and then she ends up falling off the mountain. <laughs> she just like rolls down, and if it was a cartoon, she'd like land in a, a snowball, giant snowball. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but she falls off the mountain, and like it could be really, really bad. But she has amnesia. Uh-huh. And this guy who had briefly run into her when she was like had like you know a big headdress thing and like big dark glasses and everything he, he doesn't recognize her he finds her at the bottom of the mountain takes her to the hospital 
The hospital says she's fine. She's clearly got a head injury and she's got amnesia. She doesn't remember who she is. Mm. Uh, and we don't know what to do with her. We didn't have any ID on her or anything like that. So we're looking around to try to find her, but she's got to go somewhere because she doesn't need to be at a hospital right now. We need the space. Yeah. So he says, listen, I run a bed and breakfast. <laughs> we have plenty of rooms. She can stay with us for a while. Okay. And while she's there, she decides to, you know, earn her keep by helping out. And of course... She's never done chores, <laughs> but she doesn't know she's never done. She chores, doesn't know she's so, never done uh, chores, but it turns, but it turns out she 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 doesn't have like. The thing with the amnesia, at least as it is in movies, is typically like there's like sort of stuff that's sort of like ingrained. Like you don't mm-hmm. really learn how to talk most of the time. Yeah, your real like, character comes out. I mean, amnesia stories typically it's yeah a horrible person lear- like recalls the decent person they always were. That's very commonly where the amnesia. It's, and this it's, is, it's and this, rarely the opposite. Where it would be de- interesting if a decent person catches amnesia and they uh, become a become a dick. They're just like cruel to everyone. I, I, I kind of want to see that. <laughs> it sounds like a fun twist. But um, so like so like oh she's gonna do the laundry but she pours like the entire thing of laundry mm. fluid in. It's a big mess. You know. So, so she remembers that she doesn't know how to do that. Well, she doesn't know how to do that, and right. so they, so it leads to some wacky shenanigans. Uh, but yeah, she befriends the guy, and of course, he has a teenage daughter, and it's nice. And um, and they start the like mo- mother, the daughter, and yeah, it's like, and then they start falling for each other, and it's nice. And uh, meanwhile, uh, the influencer boyfriend he fell off the other side of the mountain. Oh, so uh, he has been. Uh, Trying to get back to civilization, but he ended up falling in with a poacher. Oh no! It's like this old, like, like in, old in the Simpsons. The, in the Simpsons, the character would be named like Gummy Joe, you know. <laughs> and like, and he's, and you know what? They're cute together. Mm-hmm. You spend the entire film wondering if they're going to date. <laughs> it's actually kind of a weird subplot, and it kind of it almost kind of works. Um, and so yeah, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, oh, will they find out who she is? Will it be awkward? And it goes exactly where you expect it to go. Mm-hmm. Um, Christmas movies don't pull out a lot of well, surprises. Well, rom-coms don't either. Yeah, yeah. You know, we go to certain movies, and I say this all the time, we go to certain movies and genres to get specific things out of it. And here, you want Lindsay Lohan to be in a, a pleasant Christmas rom-com. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's here, and it's pleasant. Is it remarkable? No. It does come from an exciting director. This is from Janine Damien. I don't know Janine Damien. I, I assumed you wouldn't. No, uh, d- did Janine Damien just do like some of the Christmas movies you this is like? Ju- this is the directorial debut of Janine Damien. Oh, you excuse your me. Right. Janine Damien uh, has had an interesting career in the film industry. Uh, she has uh, got early work as a dancer. She was one of the dancers in Captain EO. Okay. So... Already one of the coolest people going. Uh, and then she moved on to write TV movies, including the great Hallmark Princess Trilogy. A princess for Christmas, a royal Christmas, crown for Christmas. Every single one of them was about a working class person who winds up in a castle at Christmas and falls for a prince at Christmas. They're basically the same film. <laughs> And yet they're all nice. Is it a diff- different person each time, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, one of them was uh, Lacey Chabert. Hmm. Uh, one of them was... Oh, who was the Alicia Christmas Witt movie? and, Cam- no, and that, Candace Alicia, Cameron. I don't think Alicia Witt ever did a princess movie. I don't think right. uh, Candace Cameron Bray ever did either. No, the original one was Katie McGrath. Okay. <laughs> who was, and that was the one that co-starred Roger Moore. Uh, then there was... Uh, uh, hold on, I'm looking for... Um, 
I lost it. Hang on. IMDb is betraying me here. Uh, A Royal Christmas was Lacey Chabert, and Crown for Christmas was um, Danica McKellar. Oh, okay. So, you know, great stuff. She also wrote one of the best cult movies that somehow doesn't have a cult yet. High Strung. High Strung, the... uh, The violin slash dance movie. Oh, okay, yeah. Featuring the greatest violin duel in movie history. It's like the... Steve Odekirk movie no. <laughs> with Jim Carrey? No, no. The, high, the good one. Right. Anyway, she made a directorial debut. She made a cute little movie. All right. That's about as far as I'm willing to go. It's, it's, a, it's, it's hardly a great return to form for Lindsay Lohan, but you know what? She knows what she's doing. She makes yeah, the movie good. Good for her. Honestly, she, it's, it's... She's still talented. And she mean, is. Like, I feel like this is... like it's, it's interesting because, you know, Lindsay Lohan's back. Yeah. And you kind of would expect it to come back in like a big thing, like the Parent Trap Two or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's it, it's it's like a it's like a soft opening, there you is. know, like <laughs> this isn't the grand opening. We're just sort of easing into it and just saying we're, no one's going to be a dick about this, right? And sure enough, no one's really being a dick about it. Reviews well, think, weren't yeah. great, but it's, she's fine. The movie's good. It did good for Netflix. She's doing more for them. I, I remember when Lindsay Lohan was sort of trapped in that tabloid cycle, and, yeah, and she was struggling with her addiction and. Uh, she kept on trying to uh, stage every one of her films as like, this is the one that's going to sort of push me back. Push me back the, into the, the, the Liz Taylor movie. The Liz Taylor movie, especially, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that was also, I know. She's fine in me. it. That movie's terrible. I know Who Killed Me was like, and I'm going to do like this really edgy, dark thriller. Yeah, it's going to change like, yeah, my whole image. I'm going to be, yeah. yeah, it's a violent, sexy movie. It's going to be completely different from everything it's I've done. And that was supposed to me. push her over the top. Yeah. Uh, it, it, Audiences very, just didn't. didn't very odd film. I yeah. I love it, but yeah, I, I dig it. You know, there's but there's a lot of strange story conceits in that one. And that's the point. It's you know, supposed to be like weird. Yeah, vanishing limbs and yeah. uh, I'm not going to say anything else because so I don't want to give away, weird. I love give away a lot of the stuff. But uh, it's nice that she's uh, not doing. It sounds like she's not doing that this time. Like she's not no. trying to say this is my grand return. Just no. I'm I'm going to act again. I, yeah, and, she and your she gets, and she's she acting act the sweet rom com. Mm-hmm. She's fine in it. It's not a particularly remarkable thing. So uh, it's, it's nice that the the stakes are low. Yeah. If, if there's a, if I can say yeah, that again, and, and you know what? Sometimes the stakes are low. Hmm. They don't all have to be like groundbreaking, yeah. life changing hmm. films. She made a Christmas rom com. She made a relatively decent one. She Good for uh, her. she needs to find a director, the way uh, like Willem Dafoe and Abel Ferrara have quietly yeah. been making like these devastatingly awesome movies, yeah. like 15 of them in a row and nobody's yeah. talking about uh, them. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you who that director will not be. Paul Schrader. Oh, Remember well, that awful the, movie she made with Paul Schrader? Yeah, the, the, the Canyons it was called. Oh, and, the, awful. and yeah, it was, it, that was supposed to be another one of those edgy yeah, things, no, but no, was, it just wasn't. Was just, uh, it was, I think it was a Brett Easton Ellis story. Yeah. And, yeah, it was. And, it was yeah, just, just a, did, it was didn't abysmal movie. get it. Yeah. Abysmal movie. Uh, so anyway, good luck to you, Lindsay. This is, uh, this is, this is a nice step. Mm. Um, all right, and that is it for our main movie reviews. We're going to do a quick review roundup uh, because this is one of the longest episodes we've ever done got a lot of, of the original to show cover, proper. Yeah. And we've complained about movies being too long. Um, <laughs> different medium. Sure. Our, our, our lengths. You uh, can justify it to yourself however you standards want. Standards are different. All right, uh, so here's our review roundup real fast. If you're new, uh, we review movies on a scale of C- minus to C+. Plus. Where C is average, most movies are average, some good, some bad, more for one audience than another, uh, you give it, you get a C. Mm. If you're below average, you get a C-, minus. that's that's below a C. And uh, that is everything from, we just don't recommend it, it's not very good, to, it's a piece of crap. Mm. And then there's a C+, plus. that's above average. Anything from, we like it, we recommend it, we think you should see it, to the best movie ever made. Anything in that range, 
That's a C plus. Uh, on that note, uh, falling for Christmas, C. <laughs> okay. Just a flat C. Like if you if you like this kind of Christmas, even if you like this kind of Christmas rom com, they're the kind of movies you have on in the background. Okay. They're just a pleasant, unremarkable experience. But that's mm. what they're supposed to be. One could argue that technically that should make it a C plus, but I think that's pushing it a smidge. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, next up, uh, Bones and All. Bones and All. Uh, a, a very high C. Almost a C plus. Okay. I feel like uh, Luca Guadagnino has a lot of really interesting, uh, just visual style. It's really uh, kind of draws you deep into this these sort of like low class American highways that he really wants to sort of push you down. Uh, and I appreciate that he's trying to do something really strange with genre, where he's trying to mm. do this you know sort of cannibal romance. Uh, it, it it's not so exhilarating, however, so novel that I'm I'm moved to give it a C plus. Fair enough. The inspection. The inspection also a C. Uh, again, like I said, I wish that this film had confronted its sort of uh, homophobic attitudes a little bit more, mm. uh, and that is like the homophobic attitudes sort of inherent within the military system that the character finds himself inside of. Uh, in terms of just the emotional journey, though, it's pretty strong. Okay, uh, let's see. Disenchanted, the sequel to mm. Enchanted. Um, it's a good premise, just lousy execution. Mm. Just uh, the, the solid ideas, like on paper, makes sense, should work, cast is good, premise is funny. In execution, most of the jokes fall flat. It overall feels like a very cheap production to the film's detriment. Yeah. Where it just, it's hard to accept the conceit that the world's been turned into a fantasy land when it looks like you added some streamers and flowers. Like it doesn't really, doesn't really hit and connect. So unfortunately it's a C minus. Uh, let's see here. But uh, bing. Next we have Slumberland. Slumberland. C minus. Hmm. Uh, th- not only did I hate this movie, but it made me wonder what we're doing with special effects based fantasy genre films in general. It, it uh, ruins special effects for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, come on, come on, James Cameron. Give me, give me them underwater blue men. Uh, I need to, I need a hit. I need some wonderment in my movies. Uh, let's see. My father's dragon. Uh, that's also C minus. Uh, not not creative or interesting enough. Not interesting characters. Uh, interesting visual style, except on the main dragon. I don't like the way the dragon was designed, but the the other animals look pretty interesting. All right, uh, Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. Uh, it's a C. Okay. Uh, I I wish that it had been a little bit more focused on its world than it was on sort of its plot. Um, but you know, it's sort of stuck in that Marvel mold. Where you know it's it's almost perfunctory that we have to have like the fight sequences and yeah. a certain kind of world building where it's going to extend into other movies and that's the least least interesting stuff in it. All right, uh, the menu. Uh, the menu. I'm sorry to be so boring. Uh, also a C. Yeah, uh, I, I want it. To, I want it to average be average. Is average. Uh, they should. They should all average out to average. I, I, I wanted it to be a lot more wicked than it was, mm. but I think you know, what they present is is still pretty good. Uh, I'm going to give it a very low C plus. Uh, okay. I, I like it. I think it's. Um, I think it's overall righteous indignation on behalf of service workers everywhere for of all stripes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes across and makes it very difficult to root against the movie, yeah. even though it's uh, a little uneven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the highlights are so damn high. Okay. I, I just had a real blast with it. So, uh, and then lastly, the Fablemans. Well, you forgot she said. Oh, I did forget she yeah. said. I'm so sorry. <laughs> My bad. She yeah. said. Uh, she said. Yeah. I'm going to give a. a, a not a hugely passionate. I'm going to give it a C plus. Mm. Not a hugely passionate C plus. Uh, just because I I think it does uh, give voice to a lot of mm. uh, sort of crime and issues that you know 
the world is facing at large and you know, yeah. about this particular case. Uh, and it, it's nice to sort of have it all condensed into one spot. Ah. Uh, it could have a lot more character, could have a lot more personality rather than just be a procedural. But as a procedural, it's pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, apologies, we did nine movies. And it's, it's yeah, I, I understand. That's right. All right. And last, now lastly, lastly the, the Fablements. C minus. Uh, I feel like this was a, a little bit of a whiff. I feel like there's a lot of great moments in this. I feel yeah. like there's a few interesting episodes, but it does... It's really just Steven Spielberg kind of telling a lot of unconnected anecdotes, mm-hmm. and it feels like a bunch of unconnected anecdotes. Yeah. It doesn't emerge as a feature film. It's just him sort of indulging in these moments of memory to no real purpose. Yeah, I, I, I'm mostly with you. I'm going to give it a very low C. Okay. Uh, I think the... It's two movies, really. One is a somewhat unremarkable divorce drama, and the other one is a somewhat heavy-handed ode to one's own greatness. <laughs> but there are moments of inspiration yeah, that yeah. make it difficult to write off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are the moments that I will take with me. Yeah, the, and unfortunately, the, it's a small percentage of the film, yeah, the, 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 but they were big enough to give the me the, the uh, elevated above a scene. The last five or six minutes are pretty great. Mm-hmm. I'll say that. All right, uh, that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with reviews of other movies, like uh, Devotion or Strange New World. No, Strange Just World. Strange World. Just Strange World. Strange, Strange New World. World is the Star Trek show. Oh, that's such a good show. <laughs> uh, and and other things as well. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of we'll have a lot of catching up to do as the year progresses because it's a just, word season. It's a word season, and they are just cranking them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so stick around; should be fun. And of course, uh, we'll have more shows here at the Critically Acclaimed Network and over at Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed. We have a ton of exclusive shows, including our Star Trek show and our Oscar show and our commentary tracks and all that good stuff. Yeah, uh, we have a lot of cool stuff uh, in the stuff world. Uh, you can also listen to <laughs> this sh- reviewing stuff world. We, you can listen week. to this show free of ads on Patreon, and I recommend you do so because then you don't get the ads. <laughs> right, uh, and uh, of course, uh, there you can always write in. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, you can, we might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Send us an actual physical letter to uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And here's the cool thing. Uh, it's the holiday season, and uh, whatever you celebrate, it's a great time for gifts. And you know what? There's a lot of cool stuff you can get from us, or our, our, our larger web. Mm. Uh, because my partner, M. Lopez de Silva, has a new book. Uh, it is uh, from Dreadstone Press. It is part of the Split Scream series. One book, two novelettes. Uh, their story is What Ate the Angels, which is a Los Angeles uh, ASMR lesbian vor non-binary romance horror story. And it's awesome. The reviews are fantastic. Aww. You really got to check Could, it out. Couldn't fit one more genre in there? Come on. No, nah, it's, it's, it's perfect as it is. Uh, so you can find that wherever fine books are booked. Uh, and if you want soap, and we have a really cool holiday soap coming for you from the Salt Cat Soap Store, patreon.com slash saltcatsoap is our Soap of the Month Club. Uh, we release uh, soaps every month, handcrafted, lovingly made, to our members. Uh, you can get one soap, you can get two soaps, and we have a really cool holiday soap planned for December. So if you sign up before December 1st, you will get something really cool. And that's, that's that. I think that's yeah. that. Okay. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for listening. We're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim, as long as Twitter's still around. <laughs> and uh, we might set up shopping somewhere else, just in case. Uh, I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Sowell. And that's, uh, that's, that's the show that we do. Never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.